Welcome to On the Wing with Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. And uh, this particular episode is going to be heavy duty on the Quail Forever side of the equation. We have with us, um, he has joined us in Minnesota on an absolutely beautiful fall day. Uh, he's come all the way from Arizona. Uh, Jonathan Odell, the small game biologist with the Arizona Game and Fish Department. Do I, do I have the agency named right? Yeah, Ari- ev- Arizona Game and Fish right, Department. Because every <laughs> every darn agency has, you know, the DNR, the Game Fish and Parks, the Kansas Department Tour. So I always have to double check that I got the agency right. So well, well, that's and that's actually pretty good because so just educational wise. Um, most of the Western U.S. Yeah. used to be either either game and fish or fish and game. Some of them turned to DNRs, but there's actually a reason for the order of the name. Really? There is. Okay. So it, educate me today. <laughs> so there's very few agencies that are game and fish, and the reason why game starts first is because we have more game than fish. Hmm. So New Mexico is one. Wyoming is one. We're one. Um, and then you'll hear other ones that are that are fish and wildlife, fish, wildlife, and parks. So what's a state that would lead with fish? Uh, Oregon. Oregon, um, fish. California. Yeah, the coastal states are really heavy in, in the fish side. Um, I'm looking at my co-host for this episode, Jared Wickland. Did you know that? You learn something new every day. <laughs> <laughs> I, I had, know that. I That's kind of cool. That is cool. I didn't had no idea. And so usually, yeah, it's, it's kind of funny because you'll hear people talk and the vast majority of states usually it's fishing game mm-hmm. and and so you'll hear them you know kind of kind of misinterpret your agency's name in that way and and uh it's not that they don't recognize that you know who you are or whatever they're like oh you know we need to talk to the arizona fishing game it's like well technically it's game and fish but i don't take it personally so <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> well we we are absolutely thrilled uh you made the trek all the way from Arizona to Minnesota just for this podcast. I, I'm absolutely <laughs> thrilled to be here. I was looking at your uh, your upland bird hunting super issue for Pheasants Forever while I was waiting. And apparently I'm doing number nine of the do-it-yourself while I'm here. Yes. Northern Minnesota grouse and woodcock hunt. So. Yeah, so, so I, I teased you didn't come just for this podcast. There was a, um, a, a perfect happenstance that you were in town uh, to do a little grouse and woodcock hunting because it is your your first ever venture into the forest. Well, uh, it's first time in the Northwoods in the fall. I've been here in Minnesota during summers or in the deep deep winter where you know, okay. no one wants to be in the woods. You but. chose a, you chose wisely this time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Because it's glorious out there. Well, right and, and my boss earlier, just a, a, a few weeks back, he went and did number 10, the, the high mountain ptarmigan in Colorado. So Very nice. Um, we're kind of reaching out and seeing what else is going on out there. You're so. going off our checklist. It's the bucket list, yeah. yeah. Terrific. It, and then the, the other reason you were in town, um, you also represent, in addition to small game, you represent the waterfall interests uh, for Arizona, and you were in town meeting with the Fish and Wildlife Service about next year's yeah actually um, um, so this year i have been um the chairperson of the pacific flyway hmm. uh arizona was was the chair and so um i had to be up here uh fish and wildlife service the service regulations committee meeting was was kind of gathered to to hear all the different flyways recommendations and, and approvals and stuff so 
uh, our flyway generously sends the the study committee. We're on the technical side more than than the uh, the actual voting council members and mm. things like that. But uh, we're there for support, and so uh, um, our flyway very generously sends the the chairperson to be there just to make sure things are are fluid and and everything goes hopefully according to plan and and all that as we make the recommendations for next year so because as as much as much as you love hunting small game and upland birds you are a big waterfall guy correct so oh yeah i well maybe the it, crane it, commander yeah, judging so, by so our so our <laughs> our social social media status and being friends and i well, see those pictures once well if you look at the pacific flyway it's it's very interesting you know we're we're the only flyway that has alaska um, we also have to to really deal with the international part of the Migratory Bird Treaty Act with Russia and Japan, and and have a lot of great you know conversations. We have uh, uh, Vasily who comes over from Russia every year, who's working on snow geese on on Wrangell Island for us. And but you know it, as a flyaway, the states are very different. You know, um, if you're a waterfowler, I mean, you know about Central Valley, California. I mean, it's it's mm-hmm. unreal to see that that time of the year, you know, with, with waterfowl there. Well, obviously Arizona isn't central Valley, California, <laughs> it, you know, cause that's, that's where my mind was like, why is Arizona part of this? Well, you know? and, and so we're, we're obviously one of the big four dove States, mm-hmm. um, you know, which is California, Arizona, New Mexico, and Texas. We're, we're really seen as the big four. We have just abundant populations of doves, but Arizona is, is unique is historically we've had, um, a large population of sandhill cranes that winter, um, along the Colorado River, and then of course on the the southeastern side with New Mexico, where the Arizona and New Mexico are the crossover point for a couple populations of hmm. wintering sandhill cranes. So, you know, we we were the first state in the Pacific Flyway to start hunting them back in the '80s, and um, you know, really really kind of showed that we could manage such a large, long-lived bird with hunting as a part of it. And so it's kind of built into the tradition of, of Arizona a little bit with, with the webless species, mm-hmm. um, you know, those without web toes. And so I, I see a few fair number of ducks, but it's, yeah, it's, we're definitely not Stuttgart, Arkansas by right. any <laughs> stretch of the imagination. So. A little different weather. Yeah. Um, it, you know, nothing says hunting Arizona like, you know, shorts and t-shirts and flip-flops even <laughs> in January. So, Well, you may not be a uh, Stuttgart, Arkansas, right, as the locals call it, um, uh, or Stuttgart, uh, depending on um, who you talk to. But uh, Arizona is a um, a quail destination for all of the country, particularly when it gets uh, cold in the northern part. So, um, first of all, thank you very much for for swinging through headquarters to to talk quail forever, talk quail hunting. Um, I'll introduce you with your Twitter profile because I find it fascinating. Um, <laughs> your, your Twitter profile says, um, and I'm going to rearrange it just a moment. Uh, it says, a Western sportsman that isn't blinded by horns, antlers, or size. It's all about food, fun, and adventure. And he, here's the hashtags he uses to identify him, uh, Jonathan Odell. Hashtag squirrel hunting legend. <laughs> hashtag outdoor writer. Hashtag amateur chef. So with that intro, uh, tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, your your background in the outdoors and how you became the squirrel hunting legend, even even if it's in your own mind. Well, no. And so I so here's what I can tell you. I, I, grew, <laughs> I grew up in southwestern Montana. Um, you know, which is just a, an absolute playground for a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't think there was, 
that there wasn't hardly anything we couldn't hunt within, you know, 20 miles of our front door. And, um, it, you know, times have definitely changed now, but you know, when I was a kid, man, I mean, we, we used to bring our, our guns to school, hmm. you know, and keep them in our lockers. And, and, um, so we would go out on lunch breaks or whatever our principal at, at our high school, you know, had a rule that you could, you could hunt deer before school, but, um, you couldn't be late. And if you were, you'd better sure have a deer. And the only way he would excuse you for the rest of the day is you had to pull the truck right up in front of the high school, go in and get him so he could see it and verify it. And then he'd, he'd send you home the rest of the day to take and care of the animal. Southwest so. Montana? Yeah. yeah. Was, so what town is So it? this is Boulder. This is oh, between okay. Butte and Helena. Okay. Um, and, uh, you know, population about 1,500. But, but I spent a lot of time as a kid um, in the woods with a gun, just, you know, all by myself, unsupervised, you know um, uh, kind of that, that tradition and stuff. And, and so I grew up doing it. And, and so to add to the squirrel thing, what's, what's pretty funny is, <laughs> you know, we were very much meat hunters, um, mm-hmm. as our family was. And it was, it was, we bought all the tags we possibly could. Um, and of course they were over the counter and Montana was a little freer in terms of, of, you know, transferring, mm-hmm. um, tags and stuff. And so my dad worked really hard. And know, just to, to be clear, we're not talking about tags for squirrels. No, right? no, no. Okay. This is tags, <laughs> tags but, but so, you know, a lot of times he didn't have the ability to take time off. So it come deer season, dad would drop me off at my grandfather's house for two weeks. And I would have all my tags. I'd have all his tags and all mom's tags. Huh. And he's like, have fun. See you in two weeks. Fill the and so I would go out with my grandfather, um, my two uncles. And, um, I mean, it was just, it, they were kind of like giant meat gathering runs. Hmm. We, we were equal opportunists. It was like, okay, what do you want to go after today? Mm-hmm. You know, let's, let's see how many we get because they usually had their tags, their wives tags. You know, we, we'd have grandparents tags and all that stuff. But one of the rules I remember as a kid, cause Montana really at that time, mostly only had red squirrels the little little chatter boxes high elevation and um (laughs) my dad would he was like we're not wasting a bullet on one of those like no absolutely not like we're trying to feed people here john like you can't feed people with those stupid little squirrels you know (laughs) and uh so um i moved from from montana to arizona to go to school hanging out for a while and um now arizona was a whole different world you know you couldn't go to the local grocery store and buy your tags it was a draw Hmm. And it was like, wow, okay, this is, I had a hard time figuring it out to start with. So the college years? Wait, yeah, you said yeah. You go to school? Okay. Yeah, college years. I was, well, and, and I had bounced back and forth. I was down there for college originally. Um, I joined the Army, hmm. kind of traveled uh, a little bit for a few years there, and then came back to Arizona. That's where I met my wife. And so I was back in school and, and actually in school for wildlife. And, and um, But, man, I, I had a hard time figuring out the draw. Hmm. Uh, you know, I just, it didn't register with me, like, how to do it. Um, and I probably just didn't invest enough time into it, but so, uh, a friend of mine in, in a classmate, we were, we were talking about, Oh, you know, what are we doing this fall and, and that? And he's like, well, you know, I got a deer tag. I'm like, well, I didn't draw anything again. Cause I don't even understand the draw. And he's like, well, he's like, why don't you go squirrel hunting? And I'm like, what? And he's like, yeah, try squirrel hunting. And I'm like going, dude, I'm, I've never shot a squirrel before. I'm, I don't know what I'm doing. Like, <laughs> this is kind of insane. But he's like, here, let me show you. So we, we pulled on a map. He pointed to an area on the map. He's like, why don't you just go try there? And I said, okay, well. So drove out there and literally just had, the like, the best time I'd ever had hunting ever. 
Hmm. It was just squirrels were everywhere. You know, I'm chasing them around. And what kind of squirrels are we talking about? Now, these are, these are the Abert's tree squirrels. So they're only in the Four Corners region. It's hmm. a very – Arizona is unique in that it really has a significant biological diversity compared to the rest of the country. Okay. Um, actually, the highest biological diversity in North America. So that's the number of, of trees and, and plant species, animal really? species, all that stuff, is centered in southeastern Arizona. There are weird, endemic, strange, you know, species out there you don't find anywhere else. Huh. Um, and particularly even in North or in the United States. Um, but so I was out there chasing these Abrams tree squirrels, had a blast. You know, it was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. So I really kind of delved into squirrel hunting pretty hard and, and was like, okay, you know, I'm trying to figure it out and learn. And I was watching stuff and, and you know, how do these things react? And, and I'd spend a lot of time in the woods just kind of observing and, and watching them. So fast forward a few years and uh, working for the department, figured out the draw now, you know, getting tags every once in a while, but still really enjoyed squirrel hunting. And I looked at my fall travel schedule one year and I said, wow, I said, you know, I'm going to be within the range of all eight tree squirrels in the United States. I wonder if anyone's ever done that before. Grand slam. Yeah. Like I just, I, and, and so like it wasn't, it wasn't a purposeful thing. I was just like, I wonder if I could get all eight, hmm. you know? And, um, and of course you had to be in Arizona cause there's a couple that are only kind of there and, and some in California and some in the Midwest and, and all that. And so it ended up working out. I, 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 in a whole season I'd shot all eight species of tree squirrels and I was sending them out and getting them taxidermied. I thought, you know, this would be kind of cool, you mm. know, just as kind of a, we're all kind of like Pokemon collectors, you know, you mm. got to catch them all for some reason. <laughs> and so I get them all mounted. Well, I was working with the um, Smithsonian at the time, um, and surprisingly, you might be surprised to learn about the Smithsonian that um, they don't have everything. You know, when you when you ask them, you know, hey, you know, can you measurements of this species or that mm-hmm. species? Turns out the Smithsonian doesn't have everything. Hmm. Um, and I was like, what do you mean? You're the Smithsonian. You're supposed to have everything. Right. Um, but there was a few th- specimens from Arizona. They were still kind of missing. They, they had a few, but they didn't have like several different types of them in different forms. So um, as I was working with them, I was talking to them and I said, you know, um, one of the things they, they possibly needed was uh, Mexican fox squirrels, which come from Arizona. And I said, oh, it's not a big deal for me to collect a couple extra to send to you. And um, I said, hey, I had a question. Did um, did any of the early collectors, because they would have had to have come through Arizona to do this, did any of the early collectors get all eight species of squirrels? And they said, well, you know, I don't know. Um, let me get back to you. So I already had all these eight, had them mounted up in, in my house. My wife thinks I'm crazy. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'd like so, to see those. <laughs> yeah. So um, uh, they, they called me back and they said, hey, guess what? You know, we, we researched it all and, and apparently no one's ever gotten eight. Um, all the early U.S. biological survey back in the, the 1900s, no one had ever gotten eight. And they said close to anyone got was seven. And I said, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, what? I said, I just took all eight species, you know, and I got them hanging on my wall at home. They're like, well, do you want to, you know, submit them to the Smithsonian? I'm like going, no, no, no. <laughs> These are mine. They said, well, you probably are the only person with the full collection in private hands. Huh. And I was like, wow, this is kind of, you know, it was interesting. And, and so I had some encouragement from some buddies that said, man, you got to write up. I told you it was cool. Like, you know, yeah. you, you should write up. And so I worked with uh, uh, Phil Bourgelet from uh, Field and Stream mm-hmm. and, and we ended up getting the story put together. This was probably back in 09. Um, and then it finally published, I think, in 2010 or whatever. And and it took off from there. Huh. And um, so um, surprisingly, like, 
there's a so a lot of the guys like some of the guys I've heard him refer to me as the Jim Shockey of squirrel hunting. And, <laughs> you know, like, like so this very good company. But, but there's yeah so there's a, there's actually a, a subculture um, in America. Like you know people think there's you know just kind of a blanket hunting culture, but there's really a subculture in in America um, of squirrel hunters. And, and it's, it's interesting because it's, it's really like this, you know, deep state kind of, it's not part of the norm. It's not on TV all the time. Mm -hmm. And, and, um, so there's a guy named Joe Wilson who runs the world championship squirrel cook-off in Arkansas. Um, and my counterpart, the small game biologist for Arkansas, Clifton Jackson, actually, um, if you've heard of Cooper firearms out of Montana, and the Jackson squirrel rifle, it's named after Clifton Jackson. Huh. Um, and so like, he's, you know, to me when I, when, cause I knew about the, the Jackson squirrel rifle forever. It's a very, very expensive, very nice. It's the Ferrari of squirrel rifles. <laughs> and uh, I've always wanted <laughs> That's one. That's a statement. <laughs> and so yeah, I met Clifton at a, at a, actually a quail meeting. Yeah. It was part of the, the national Bobby conservation initiative. I, I met him at a tech committee meeting and, and he was real excited about meeting me cause he knew I'd done the, the, the slam. And I put two and two together, and I was like, going, "Oh my God, you're Jackson, you're you're Clifton Jackson, the Jackson Squirrel Rifle." And he's like, "Yeah." So um, he and I have gone out hunting. I've I've been to the the World Championship Squirrel Cookoff a few times and took third place my first year. And you know, I mean, it's it's a really good time, but it's this whole subculture that kind of the mainstream hunting world doesn't even like mm. know about or or you know exist in. So it's 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 neat to see because. Yeah, most of these guys, it's like, yeah, we still hunt. I mean, we hunt deer, we hunt elk, we, you know, the things that everyone else does, but we just really love squirrel, <laughs> you know? And, um, so it's, it's kind of a counterculture subculture thing going on with, within the hunting community. That's, that's almost under the radar of most people. So. And there is, if I recall correctly, there's a squirrels unlimited. There is a and conservation and, group. And right? Joe Wilson's a part of that. Yeah. And that's good based buddy Joe. in Pennsylvania. Is that right? I think originally it had started there, but, um, uh, Joe took it over and, and now, and so he has the squirrels unlimited brand and the squirrel world championship cook off and, okay. and those okay. kind of things. And so it's, it, we're, we're kind of a small and, and it's, it's interesting and you know, it's, it, it there are a lot of people who actually like really, you know, in, in that subculture, they, you know, you, you do these things and, and it's like, you know, oh my gosh, you know, like, you know, you're, you're, you're like a, a rock star within this, this small <laughs> community. And I'm like, no, really, I'm just a regular guy who just went out and shot squirrels. Like I just was having fun. Um, but I know, uh, even in the conservation community, I've had several people who followed me, um, because once I had completed it, they were like going, oh, my gosh, that's awesome. You know, it's like the working man slam. Uh-huh. I'll never afford all four bighorn sheep or whatever sure. in my life, but I can do the squirrels, you yeah. know. And so <laughs> uh, I think there's been about three or four people who followed after me who were, you know, they wanted to do the same thing and get them all mounted and stuff. And then, then you kind of work on the, on the bigger group where, you know, you start getting color phases and things mm. like that. And that's kind of where we're all at. So, you know. Well, I you know we intended to have a quail discussion and a squirrel one broke out, but that <laughs> but that that's that's fascinating. That's pretty Very cool far, background, no doubt about it. Um, but let us go to the quail side of the equation because um, um, y- you do have a really unique story to tell in Arizona because you have um, a variety of quail species there, and you know for for us in the the Midwest or in the Bob, Bob White range, so much of quail populations depend on habitat. Now, habitat's a component when you talk Arizona, but it's a, maybe a little bit more complicated than that. So let's start with 
Um, kind of give us an overview of the species that are available in Arizona, and, and um, we'll start there. So um, Arizona is the only state, again, when we talk about biological diversity, we're the only state with five native quail species hmm. that originally occurred within our borders. Um, and so um, we'll talk about the lesser ones first because I think that, that makes sense. Um, the, the big one is the mast bobwhite. Now, some folks may or may not have heard about this, but the mast bobwhite is the only endangered quail in North America. Hmm. Um, and interestingly enough, we actually have a national wildlife refuge that was established not for waterfowl, but actually for an upland bird, the mast bobwhite. Hmm. So we have a facility in, in southern Arizona. It's a little southwest uh, of Tucson called the Buenos Aires. Um, and uh, they basically at one point, you know, there, there was so much fear about losing this bird that they went and gathered up, you know, all that they could, captured them all, and, and tried to do a captive breeding um, and release program. And it's it's suffered ups and downs over the years and, and all that. Um, uh, a lot of work with Mexico. Um, and so now there's a second facility actually in Mexico that the Mexican government's kind of been helping out with, you know, hopefully trying to reestablish this bird. But it's it's been very difficult. Um, we've kind of had um, – uh, some reinvigoration there just with, um, uh, change in, in, uh, personnel at mm. the, at the refuge and, and man, they're willing to try everything. And so, um, you know, we had, uh, um, much like tall timbers in Florida mm -hmm. where they do the surrogate, um, program where they, where they learned that they could surrogate, you know, some, some pen reared bobwhite and rewild them basically right. with, a with a um, sterilized adult um, to just kind of adopt them and take them out. You know, we're, we're back trying to, to hopefully work on that. So we have um, bobwhites from Texas, some male bobwhites that, that have been sterilized and, and are hopefully fostering um, these these mass bobwhites to rewild them. So, so masked bobwhites are, are basically just um, kind of a genetic um, – subspecies of the regular bobwhite, right? Uh, a little bit. Um, they, you know, it, the, the, I think the, some of the science has been, you know, kind of back and forth on it, you know, is mm. how closely related they are to them. Um, whether being unique species, I mean, it, similarly, they look pretty close. If you've ever seen Tennessee reds, mm -hmm. um, Tennessee reds share a lot of physical similarities, um, to how the mass bobwhite looks. Mm. Um, but I think overall, they're almost really a different, could be considered a different species. Okay. Um, genetically, because they've tested to see how close um, the mass bobwhite we have in captivity are to, the, to near po nearby populations as well as Tennessee reds and stuff. And, and they are definitely a different. Um, so the, you, you mentioned they're the only endangered quail species in North America. Is that a, in North America, is that a habitat issue or what's the cause for the population we think it's probably habitat. I mean, you know, the, the hardest thing to figure out is, is really, we had thought they were gone, hmm. um, for a short while. Like they, there were records and then there wasn't any, hmm. um, until, um, they were refound, um, in, in that one Valley where the, the Buenos Aires, it's all tar Valley. Um, some folks found out, you know, man, there's still birds left. Hmm. And so, and this was really early, probably, probably about the time Arizona got started up again, um, having quail seasons where, where we started to do the studies and, you know, learn more about them and that and worked with 
Fish and Wildlife Service under the Endangered Species Act and, and just gather them all up. And so one of the, the key questions is Southern Arizona used to be um, desert grasslands. And then, of course, they brought in cows and sheep and they just, you know, it was nuclear holocaust at the end of the 1800s, early 1900s in Arizona where the cattle, Arizona just doesn't, you know, because of the lack of rain, we don't produce grass mm-hmm. <laughs> quite as readily. Mm-hmm. So a lot of our native grass species they don't come back, um, right away, you know, when they get bit all the way down to the roots. So, um, there was a big conversion in Southern Arizona at this time. And, and so it's hard to really know necessarily what, um, their habitat requirements were. Um, overall, you know, we, we kind of, they're in a unique Valley that has some unique features, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and was it specific, um, to that type of environment or what exactly did it look like before? Um, and so it's, it's, it's been, it's been hard. It's been very difficult to, to understand these birds. And particularly when you move them from the wild into captivity and trying to rewild them into something we're not a hundred percent sure on. Right. Um, you know, we, we definitely know a lot about quail and what they eat and how they operate and things like that. But there's some, some minutia, some, you know, some minor details that, that maybe, you know, overall we were missing in the equation or, mm. you know, don't fully, fully grasp or understand. So so I'm assuming in that part of the state, there isn't any quail hunting because you don't want to accidentally uh, take in- one. Of interestingly, we do have quail hunting. You do? There. Okay. Yeah, around the refuge. Um, uh, it's it's pretty close to Tucson, and, and so we do have scaled quail still in that valley. We have uh, gambles quail, and, and do actually end up having quite a bit of harvest around there. Now folks know to, to kind of stay away from the refuge, mm-hmm. um, you know, boundaries, and, and you know, make sure it's it's your responsibility to know what you're harvesting. And when a masked bobwhite covey flushes, and I'm assuming they flush in mm-hmm. the covey, mm-hmm. right? It, can you tell instantly versus scaled or gambles yeah it's 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 a lot more different i mean bob whites have the you know the characteristic whistle they have you know um so a masked similar flush yeah very very similar in in two two bob whites you know when we Mm. we go out and listen you'll you'll, you'll hear their their call and um they are vastly different um in how they how they respond to stuff but yeah it shouldn't it's for a little more experienced quail hunter you know you're not gonna have a problem but okay um so that's species number five. That's species number five. Let's move up the um, ladder to number four. Number four is is the California quail or valley quail. Okay, sure. Um, we have on the western side of our state uh, with the Colorado River that we share with with uh, California. Um, we've always had um, uh, valley quail over there, um, and usually in low numbers. Um, you know, nothing super significant. Um, there's been a lot of agriculture along the uh the colorado river and i think that's what's kind of held them for a long time we did move uh we transplanted some you know back in the days when everyone was moving every bird imaginable um we moved some some california quail up to the little colorado river um of arizona which is up in the northeast and there's still a population there and and we've been doing some some transplants uh, with them up and down the river to try and help bolster and establish you know continue to keep that population you know thriving as, as long as it can so um, and they're surviving in a lot more harsher environments uh, hmm. up there because it's it's cold and frozen and, and snow and everything else that you don't expect yeah. <laughs> you know, down in the desert. You know, so. that you, you mentioned that a couple times in, in, you know, before, like three years ago, I flew into Phoenix and drove up to Pine Top. Mm-hmm. And you do travel through like 16 different ecosystems. I mean, you get up to Pine Top and you're like, I feel like I'm in... 
Colorado. Yeah. You know, it, it and it is dramatically different between the desert part of Arizona and, like you say, the snow and the ice, and, and you can travel between the two in like three hours well yeah and and it's beautiful that you know you can you can be hanging out in phoenix you know um really just kind of enjoying the day in shorts and Mm t-shirts and all that stuff and swimming in the pool and then just drive two hours north and you know be on a ski slope and you know in a hot tub and and stuff (laughs) during the winter it's um it's people just you know i i think it's interesting to see what perspective people have about what arizona really is right and then, you know, when they get there and find out, you know, there's just all these crazy, you know, there's spots in Arizona that, that you don't, would never believe they existed there. It's almost like you're transported somewhere else. Yeah. And, you know, we can, we have such a diversity of landscape as well as a diversity of, of life. Oh, yeah. I'm, de- I'm, de- I've definitely been guilty of that because I think Arizona and I think Phoenix, I think. Sure. The, the Straight desert up desert. Itself. Yeah. <laughs> and you go down there and you're like, where am i sure and, and we, it and, is gorgeous and we have some hallmarks i mean the saguaro cactus is you know mm-hmm. it's it's a hallmark of our state so it's you know it's because it only grows in the in the sonoran desert and right. so um it's it's pretty wild um to to think about but um anyway back to the big yeah yeah so so the, we 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 we're at california valley quail it sounds like there's a few there, probably not going to travel to Arizona specifically to hunt. No, there's California. definitely, definitely some, some, you know, you could definitely try. Um, but as far as like a recommended, well, good hunt, man, I, there's a lot of other places right. I could recommend for, for valleys if you want a good experience. <laughs> so, so as we transition to number three, now we start talking about some of the, the birds that you would go to Arizona yeah. specifically to find. Now, and that's... It, we always call it the big three, mm-hmm. you know, that's really what, what quail hunters have on their bucket list for Arizona when they have in mind. Um, so third, we have the, the scaled quail, okay. um, which also known as blue quail, depending on what side cotton of the, tops, cotton tops. Yeah. Um, so the Western side, generally it's scaled quail, the Eastern side, it's blues. Mm. Um, so just kind of vernacular differences, but, um, yeah, it's, it, it it's a, it's probably, it's definitely significant enough to hunt in terms of, of an area and population number. Um, you know, definitely New Mexico is the dead center heart of scaled quail. Okay. We're just, you know, right next door with a lot of overflow. So, um, really kind of, and they're track stars. Oh, they're, they're track stars. They, um, yeah. So the, the Arizona's two desert birds are the runners. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, they, they want to be on the ground. I mean, I've heard from a lot of guys who are like, all right, run on the ground, die on the ground. I'm tired of chasing you to get you up in the air. So they're going to skillet shot them, you know, if they get oh, them in the So open. I was wondering if that's a thing, you know, if in the grouse woods, we call it ground pounding. Ground pounding, which, pole axing. Yeah. You know, if you have a dog on the ground, you don't ground pound. But if, you know, you're you know walking a trail, sure. and, one and, presents itself. And, and so, you know, it's... Arizona is, is unique in, in it's not literally in, 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 you know, I may sound a little bit biased just cause I'm from there, but literally the, the most durable, toughest bird dogs ever mm. are born and raised in Arizona. You know, they're, they're born on a steady diet of desert quail mm-hmm. and their pads are, you know, just calloused up and, right. and rocks they really and cactuses. Learn, well, yeah. And, and everything's trying to poke them. Yeah. And absolutely. I mean, and that's, dogs that come from other areas who aren't familiar with with the hazards of arizona you know they'll look at a landscape and go i don't know how a dog runs through this mm-hmm. and then the dogs that are born there i mean boy they <laughs> they dial it in pretty quick otherwise they're going to be hurting units you know and they figure out how to how to 
you know, duck and weave and, and kind of work their way through. But they're also good as far as, you know, a lot of them, you know, if they do step on something, they do get a hazard, a big, you know, thorn in their foot or something. They'll stop and wait for you. You come, you know, pull your Leatherman out, you know, pull it out, and, man, they're back to running again. So, What, what are some of the um, major breeds of bird dogs that you see in Arizona? And wow. then And then tell me – you know, what is the bird dog breed of Arizona for chasing quail, well, if there is one? Well, and that's that's a difficult that's a difficult one to do. That's probably I mean, I can, something that will start a fight. Right? <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> um, it, you know, we have a wide variety of, of dogs um, that chase, but one of the things that's, that's probably the hardest is having a dog who's versatile enough, who can figure out how to switch gears, uh-huh. to hunt all, all of the big three well. I've never, I've almost never seen a dog that can, can switch gears between the two because for the desert birds, um, you need an almost slightly disobedient dog who's smart. So I'm just going to pause you for a second. So, because I know that we, we have a ton of listeners in the pheasant <laughs> range that we haven't gotten to all the desert birds. So just for clarification, so, yeah, so scale quail would be the desert bird and gambles would be the other. So, desert, right. So yeah, let's, so let's get back to that and then we'll, we'll get into the dog breeds. Um, so scale quail are, are, are down there. Um, and then of course we have our Merns quail. Mm-hmm. Um, Merns quail are, are a sub neotropical strange bird. Um, <laughs> they don't exist in the desert areas. What they exist in, in Southern Arizona is, um, these kind of Oak line Savannah draws. Okay. Um, and, and pretty much it's a, what we call the sky islands. Now, Does, say that again. Sky Island. Sky Island. So, so a Sky Island is is this is where you know when you were talking about all these different ecosystems, mm-hmm. the ecotones were discovered on the Sky Islands, um, and what you can imagine is is that basically you have a sea of desert, and these mountain ranges that rise up to over ten thousand foot elevation, um, in in just small little ranges, but but very large mountains. Um, and these, this is Patagonia. Right? This is this Part is all of Southern Arizona. Southern I mean, Arizona, yep. yeah. So, south of Tucson, as you're driving. Well, yeah, and even 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 kind of north of the I-10, there's a few. I mean, um, you know, the characteristic names: the Santa Ritas, the Catalinas, the Rincons, the Pinalenos, the Chiricahuas, the Huachucas. Hmm. Um, all these ranges basically rise out of the desert um, to elevations near or topping 10,000 foot. So you're going through a significant change mm-hmm. um, in elevation. But they really act like islands hmm. um, in terms of the biology, the biogeography of it. That mountain range may not have a lot of connectivity with another one. Um, and so the species that are on that, you know, you're basically just surrounded by a sea of desert. And so if you need, you know, trees or, or you know, acorns and things like that, there's not a whole lot of that down on the desert floor. You know, <laughs> so sure. you're going to have to cross quite a bit to get to another one. And we do have some interchange um, we've found between mountains um, with, with certain species. But... At the, the foothills of these mountains, um, Mern's quail exist usually between about 3,000 to 5,000 foot elevation um, in these, these kind of foothill oak line draws. And so one, we had one quail hunter, he told me, um, you know, we're, we're not very inventive with naming stuff. You know, you'll find that, that um, uh, things generally have a generic name or they have a name that's like, oh, that's, you know, Turkey Creek. Well, why? Well, we saw turkeys there. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, that's kind of mm-hmm. it. Well, I had a, a quail hunter tell me, he said, I found Mern's quail in Sycamore Canyon in southern Arizona. And I'm like, really, which one? And he's like, going, in every one. And so, like, every mountain range has a Sycamore Canyon, mm-hmm. so you're likely to find <laughs> Mern's quail in every Sycamore Canyon <laughs> on every mountain range. Um, 
but yeah, they're, they're really micro habitat specialists. Mm. And so what I tell everyone, you know, if you're coming down for the very first time, um, there's a town called Sonoida. It's, it's Sonoida. Yeah. About an hour away from Tucson. Um, a quick, easy drive. It's right where at the intersection of, of us 82 and 83. Um, but just North of Sonoida, a few miles, you'll see the sign. If you're heading down there, um, to Gardner Canyon. Um, now I always tell people pull into that Gardner Canyon, just drive up a little ways. You'll see the campgrounds on your left-hand side, pull into one. You'll notice that the North facing slope is covered with oaks and the South facing slope is all grass. Just park in the campground, cross the little dry Creek and walk around on that hillside with all the oaks and stuff on it. Mern's quail are very micro habitat specialists. What they need is like, and, and Gardner Canyon has this in spades. It is prime grade, a choice double triple a habitat um just climb around the hillside you'll actually see where they've been digging under the trees um you know so you'll see these dig spots you may find the, the little forms that they they you know rest in and, mm. and things like that out there and and they love that 30 percent canopy cover grass height they're they're eating these these little um tubers called oxalis um out of there but once you kind of get a feel for that canyon you know just just really familiarize yourself with it just go ahead and get in your car and get out of there because it is the most overhunted piece of ground mm. in the lower 48 <laughs> states. But at least you know what you're um, looking for then. But that. because if you can find that anywhere else in southern Arizona or even close to it, you're bound to find Mern's quail. Mm. You know, you'll you'll definitely run into them if you can anywhere close to that. That is is just the pinnacle of habitat. But literally from opening day to the end, there's at least three, you know, RVs with like six dogs apiece sitting in that canyon just hunting it all day. And that day. was Gardner Gardner Canyon, Canyon yeah. Okay, Gardner Canyon as the kind of the, the template to go find a sky island that looks like it. Well, you don't even need that. It's just finding those, those that, that, that oak habitat because, like I said, it, it can be very, very small pockets. And, and Mern's quail live in very small ranges. I mean, we can go in in June and GPS coveys and find them within 100 yards of that GPS point come season mm. um you know they they remain very very small and local uh-huh. so but they're they're different they're not the pear shaped like all the other quail are okay um these are more apple shaped with a head huh. and so they're fat little stout birds um and very very cryptic i mean you'd be surprised as colorful as they are that you know you can't see them and, and they have a weird survival strategy that um because their only predators ever come from the air mm. you know generally hawks and things so um, they earn the name fool's quail and things like that because as soon as danger's close, they turtle because they can vanish right in front of you hmm. simply because of the patterns on their back. It's very cryptic in the grass and very hard to see. So if a dog comes up on point, these birds just turtle and they'll, they'll hold and wait. And so it's, it's probably the, the most ideal bird dog bird mm-hmm. for a gentlemanly hunt. If your dog goes on point, and that dog will stay there yeah now Mern's quail definitely man that that dog needs to be the most obedient dog you've ever had in your life it needs to lock up on point and not creep not move at all because he'll hold the birds there for probably all day until you show up okay so um but so those are in in kind of roughly as far as our harvest goes they're they're pretty equal the scale quail and the Mern's quail probably equate to about mm, i'd say about 10 to 15 percent of our harvest each each side of them okay so together they're they're somewhere in the neighborhood of about 30 percent of our harvest so. and before we go to number one on the list tell me the reason behind Merns versus montezuma oh very very long story oh is it <laughs> it's a good story um so yeah because i people have asked me this all the time they're like 
why do you continually call them Mern's quail? The whole rest of the world calls them Montezumas. You know, because we'll say Mern's quail, and they like, I don't know what you're talking about. Hmm. You know, if <laughs> they've never been exposed to it. They'll when like, you say hey. rest of the world, these species get, uh, exist in... So, Mexico. So right? yeah, we uh, in the states, um, it's Arizona, New Mexico, and Texas. Arizona okay. has the the greatest abundance of habitat where they can be found. Okay. Um, Texas doesn't hunt them. They're over in West Texas, um, in some of their country. So but no, no, season no hunting in Texas. New Mexico does have a season, but doesn't have near the habitat we do. Okay. Um, and then of course further south in New Mexico. Well, it. As it goes down, um, if your if your listeners are interested, you can you can look up um, the distribution of these birds, and and so they basically follow all the way through Mexico, and on the very southern end, in like the Honduras and Nicaragua and and you know Guatemala and things like that, there's another quail called the oscillated quail. Mm-hmm. Now it looks very similar, um, but it has some color variation. It's it's washed out in the front. It's it's a little more brown in the chest. It's it, it kind of looks like a Montezuma, but not quite. And then in the middle, you'll find that, that they call what they call the sales quail, S-A-L-L-E apostrophe S. Um, you know, there, there's been some thought in the scientific community that these are pretty much all the same bird, maybe hmm. just, you know, a little variation. Um, but it's it's hard to say currently. But so this, it's got a very large range, and they're, and they're in the, you know, kind of the, roughly the same habitats, neotropical, subtropical, even tropical habitats. Um, as they go down, but so the original specimen for Montezuma quail was described in 1830 by a guy named Vigors, and he found it in Tamaulipas, uh, Mexico, what is currently Tamaulipas, and so that was kind of it. Well, so we had um, Edgar Mearns, who was a, a, a surgeon for the army um, and, a, and a brilliant naturalist. Um, was stationed. His very first duty assignment in the 1880s was was Southern Arizona. Well, actually, Central Arizona. He was at a Fort Verde, but he loved going out and you know finding things and describing stuff. And so he was he was in Arizona from about 1884 1888, um, and he would take these excursions and stuff. And he would find um, you know several species, but he would always find these little little birds. And he loved these these little birds. He he you know little Mern's quail and started the the time Montezuma quail. And then he came back again um, after he left. He was assigned to the um, uh, the Mexican Boundary State Survey, which he did in the in the 1890s. And it was just basically a survey of of all the resources, natural, you know, any trees, you know, gold. I mean, whatever, where do they find any of the wildlife um, for the United States to really understand what was out there? And so he did this big survey again, and of course, you know, found a whole bunch. Well, a contemporary of his in in about I guess it was about 1905, um, a guy by the name of, of Edward Nelson. Um, now, if you know, you know, these, these kind of guys who work for the U.S. Biological Survey love to name stuff after each other, <laughs> right? So that's why you have Bailey's Pocket Mouse and Miriam's Turkey. And, mm-hmm. and so Nelson and, and stuff got named after him, the, the, the Nelson I bighorn sheep subspecies. Mm. Um, a few things got named after Nelson. Well, Nelson was, was working in Mexico. Um, heavily and, and was doing a survey of, of stuff for the U.S. Biological Survey. And he was working for um, uh, C. Hart Merriam, um, who was the head of the biological survey at the time. And um, so he, he actually found all these other birds. You know, like he found, you know, some of these Montezumas in, in Veracruz and stuff. But he noticed that there was just differences hmm. in the birds, physiological color differences. And so he, he was looking at these and... and as he was going through the, the available literature at the time, which wasn't much, mm-hmm. you know, um, 
uh, he actually set forth um, three subspecies. And hmm. so the one in Tomalipus remained uh, Sertonix Montezume, the Montezuma quail. And then um, the subspecies in Veracruz, Mexico, was um, Sertonix Montezume uh, Merriami. And then the one in the southwest, because all available literature was from Merns, mm -hmm. was Merns eye. Hmm. And so uh, it was the Merns subspecies in, in the southwestern United States and North Mexico. Um, somehow, some way, you know, we go through our transition as a state. We go, you know, we started the 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 Arizona Game Protective Association was started by Aldo Leopold hmm. in, in Arizona. And then eventually they were like, Oh, you know, we need a commission and we got to, you know, have a department and, and game wardens and stuff. And, um, th so throughout that time, I think just based on available literature, um, everything I can find from our department says Merns quail, even when we had a season, but even before we had a season, hmm. like you could shoot other things, but not Merns quail. And it would just always say Merns. And so you kind of go through, and, and so in Arizona, it's just developed this legacy um, of everyone calling it Merns. Now, there's, there's been moves to try and change that, and I think every everyone maybe in my role has been like, yeah, I kind of don't like that. <laughs> and so sometimes you'll see, you'll, you'll see, actually in our commission rules, you'll see uh, Merns or Montezuma. Yeah. So, but Merns still remains. Huh. And, and so I... To me, I, I, I appreciate the regionality of sure. it because when you hear another hunter from somewhere else say Merns quail, likely it's because they came to Arizona. Huh. You know, they, they've, they've heard it from us, and that's just kind of been beat into their head. And, and they're like, you know, so it, it, it tells me something about time and place. Yeah, that's fascinating. You know, had they hunted in, in New Mexico, they're probably still calling them, you know, Montezumas. But the, the ornithology, the bird world, everybody else says Montezumas. And we, we still just defiantly, the hunting community in Arizona just says Merns. So the, the less scientific version of this is if you go anywhere in the world, it's duck, duck, goose. Right, you know the children's game. Yep. You come to Minnesota, it's duck, duck, gray duck. <laughs> <laughs> sure, <Yeah>. but um, <laughs> so yeah, we. Where uh, do you go from there? Right, it's you know, it, I just I, I think it's that regionality, and that's what what kind of keeps us going on. And and by the way, I mean Edgar Mearns, uh, you know, as, as a biologist, um, it, it, we hold him in really really high esteem. I mean, I have a copy of his of his journal. Um, he did a ride from um, Fort uh, Whipple in Arizona, which is over by current day Prescott, Arizona, and rode all the way to Deming hmm. um, as part of this. It was his first assignment. As soon as he showed up in Fort Verde, they said, hey, you need to come with us. We're, we're doing this. So he had a time to be a, a naturalist, basically, on this 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 ride and explore all the these areas that they rode through. And and um so his his that first journal is is the the actual is in the smithsonian but i've got a copy of it that sits mm. on my desk and it's kind of neat to read to see like what he saw in different places at a different era right you know pre-cattle grazing you know like i mean a lot of the stuff going on and and so really really neat but um edgar Mearns was also the um he was thought so highly of he accompanied roosevelt on the Africa expedition mm, after huh. his presidency. Um, he was the number one choice because it, like I said, it, it just a phenomenal naturalist. And, you know, he was sent there actually to catalog everything Roosevelt had killed to make sure that specimens were kept in, in proper order and all that stuff to be sent back to the Smithsonian. So, wow. um, really, really kind of a neat guy. Yeah, so. fat, it, the rest of the story, as they say, yeah. right? The yeah. Montezuma versus Mearns versus vernacular. Mearns. All right. Moving to, uh, Quail number one, the big one of uh, of the state of Arizona, <laughs> which which has to be 
the other desert species. It is. Named after another purser, right? Yep. Another, and we're going with the gambles quail. Gambles quail. So what's interesting, um, uh, Mearns, um, actually his, his name is Mearns with an S on the end. Hmm. So um, if you're ever spelling it out, you, you apostrophe after the S when you say Mearns quail. Right. <laughs> gambles is gambol. Apostrophe, apostrophe S. So, um, just for your writers out there, if you ever want to make sure you've, you've got it ah, right, 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 because his full name is Mearns, and then right. you, okay, and then so it's Gamble, not Mearns's. Right, Gamble is the name. Gamble is the name, and, and then the apostrophe, apostrophe S shows the ownership. Yeah. Added. Okay. And and so yeah, Gamble's Quail is really our number one speed. It's the it's it's on our logo um, as the Arizona Game and Fish Department. It's mm-hmm. the the center masthead there, the one with the top knot. Um, really vocal. It's it's the only true desert bird. Um, because it evolved in the Sonoran Desert. Um, scaled quail are, are an arid grassland bird hmm. versus, you know, any of the, the mountain quail or, or California quail to the west of us. They're, they're a little more uh, temperate. Okay. And so the Gambles was, was born in the fires of the desert and, hmm. and evolved to, to adapt to that. that. Lar- largest range? Um, it's, it's pretty much it, it matches the Sonora yep. um, and uh, the Sonoran Desert. Um, the estimates are really that that Arizona, and this is this is where I kind of I get into interesting conversations with folks because, you know, the Bob White exists across twenty five states. Right. Um, it's estimated that that pretty much eighty to ninety percent of the world's population of gambles quail exists only in Arizona. Hmm. And so, really, we're responsible for this bird <laughs> in in a large part. Now, gambles do extend out to Texas. Um, and they do come in into Southern California in a, in a few of their desert in locations. Nevada. They're in Nevada. A little bit in Nevada, um, Southern Utah. Um, yeah, they they reach out quite a bit um, in in lower numbers, but um, uh, we do have a transplanted population that exists in Salmon Valley, Idaho. Hmm. Um, that was back from the the 40s. That still exists out there. And then there's one little pocket of gambles on the island of Lanai in Hawaii. Um, but still hanging on um, after 67 you years. You could win a trivia so. contest for that. <laughs> <laughs> you could. You could. Um, I had hoped a few, a few years ago I was in Hawaii, um, and uh, uh, I had really hoped that they would maintain a season on them because I wanted to see if they were still as hard to hunt on a, on a tropical island yeah. as they were the desert <laughs> of Arizona. So. Um, but they've shut down that season. You haven't for a hunted few years squirrels in Hawaii, have you? There's no squirrels in Hawaii. Really? No squirrels. No. Right. Now they always they're worried about it because of plane rides and stuff. You know, huh. getting over there because they really don't want squirrels there. It's there's enough introduced species to Hawaii as yeah. it is. Um, phenomenal bird hunting, by the way. If if you're a bird hunter, definitely I recommend the Big Island um, because of what is it like three different Franklins, sand grouse, pheasants, pheasants. Um, yeah. Well, what is it like? Four different species of pheasants: Chinese ringnecks, white wing Afghans. Um, there's a there's a there's a black one. I can't remember what it is. It's like a Philippine or something like that. Huh. I mean, it's it's wild. <laughs> like you throw a bird dog out, and like they just get birdie the moment they hit the ground, and you don't know what's coming out of the grass next. Because huh. um, we flush turkeys out of the grass um, as well. Turkeys are an introduced species over there, and we actually had them flush out in front of us. <laughs> um, really, really wild, but. Um, but yeah, the, the gambles quail is, is really the abundant one. And it's the one you actually see in town Okay. when you're in Phoenix, when you're in Tucson, it's the one you hear first thing in the morning, mm. um, with the strange, you know, Chicago, Chicago, you know, <laughs> is, they're, they're out there. They're, ev- um, they're everywhere down there. They and are. just from a guy that whose parents moved down there and, and, you know, retired down in Tucson. I mean, I, I watched like a hundred of them fly into their, fly into their trees every night. 
Yeah, and they're they're interesting because they don't ground roost. That's one one unique aspect of gambles is they roost up off the ground hmm. in high in trees. So compared to a lot of the other quail that that are generally low to the ground. So you know, coming the question coming from a Minnesotan, so I'll pref- okay. preface that. They're a desert species, and they're roosting in trees. Mm-hmm. Are they roosting in cactus? It's usually Palo Verdes, mesquite trees, things okay. like that. Huh. Um, you know, those that are native to the desert. Um, now, I've seen them in some unusual, you know, uh, introduced you know species of trees as well. But it's they just prefer to be up off the ground at night, huh. um, because that's and that's what spurs the calling in the morning because it's a it's an assembly call. Um, that the male, the rooster does, he's, he's down there and, and he's, he, you know, he starts in Chicago, Chicago. It's like huddle up, you know, get the whole covey together so we can start moving for the day. So, wow. um, that's usually the, one of the greatest things is if you can be out in the desert early before sunrise and get to your, your hunting spot, just stop and listen, you know, cause then that'll help you figure out where coveys probably are and what direction you need to take to go after them. So there you go, Jared. Pro, inside tip. Pro tip number one <laughs> for Jonathan Odell. <laughs> Um, all right, so tell us a little bit, you know, we, we circled away from bird dogs because you were sure. starting to head down the road of, you know, the big three. You got the gambles, number one, Mern's number two, scale number three. It's pretty hard to find a bird dog that can adapt to all three because they're, you're hunting different cover. Well, and you're switching. So the desert birds, the gambles and scale quail, because they're runners you need a slightly disobedient dog with a brain in its head. Okay. Um, because they don't hold on point for the dogs. Um, you know, they, what you need is a dog who, who's figured out. And, and I've seen some that do it beautifully. As soon as they know where the birds are and they let you know that they know where the birds are immediately, they try and start flanking them mm. instead of going straight at them. Cause mm-hmm. they'll just continue to run straight away from you as you go, if they're trying to point the whole time. But if the dog can kind of get, you know, square them off, flank them from the side, right? Pinch them to between help pin you. because yeah, then then danger's coming from two directions. The birds are kind of you know, Trapped. oh no, we don't know what to do at this mm-hmm. point, and and it provides you up. better shooting opportunities. Well, so one of the best things is, particularly for gambles, is is the best shooting isn't on the covey flush. It's not on the covey rise. Your your objective is is to break them into singles. Um, if you can break that covey up into singles, the birds generally will hold tight being on their own because mm. they just don't have the the security of the rest of the flo- of the the covey so, so do you shoot at the covey guys you got you, you, you most do, right? you most you most certainly can but at that point it's almost kind of a distraction because then you're trying to pick up down birds yep. and your dog is focused on dead birds instead of okay now let's run around and start getting singles really yeah so you can you can actually kind of keep it together because the males are going to try and, and reassemble the the covey back together but you have usually a good good time to be able to to um, uh, if you can get them to, to that flush out of the singles, you can go and pick up singles as you kind of work your way around because it'll take them a while to gather back up. Hmm. So, um, and they'll just they they tuck and hide and wait until you know dad starts calling. That's that's really what they're waiting on. So, it's, do you treat scaled quail the same way? And like, do you shoot on the covey flush? You you most certainly can, but at the same, it's almost the same situation. Huh. If you can get them into a single situation, you almost have better better opportunities. All right, so. I'm an Arizona quail hunter. How, what percentage of folks are not shooting in the covey rise? Um, I think everyone shoots on the covey rise, okay. just, just okay. In, in general. You're just um, saying, like, if you really want to do it in a in a efficient manner, yeah, 
you let them you let them flush and then go hunt down the yeah kind of just it's so hard to not shoot the cubby sure. right <laughs> no and and but and that's one of the things that like if you can watch it you know uh-huh. if, if you can watch the cubby rise go um you know obviously you want to try and shoot towards where there's a cluster mm-hmm. but if there's singles going out somewhere and landing somewhere else that's where you're going to want to focus your attention instead of trying to get back on the main body. Okay. I mean, you definitely want to keep an eye on that because you can circle back into it. Right. But definitely go after those singles that, that landed away from the rest of the, the birds. So. And you talk about the, the, the best bird dogs that have learned to flank. Can, yeah. Can a dog trainer teach that? Or is that um, the birds teach the dog? That? No, and and of course, you know the the desert environment. There's no straight lines. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> there's sharp stuff. There's you know stuff yeah, you don't want to walk go through. <laughs> and so the dogs, you know, I think eventually start figuring it out. You know, if you can if you can keep them from just trying to just continually chase them down, because um, if they'll push them too far away from you, obviously you're not going to get any shots anyway. Mm. Um, but a disobedient dog who who has a brain in his head a little bit, you know, who locks up on point and realizes the birds are moving, you know, check back. Okay, Dad's coming. Right. <laughs> let me let me start working well, around to try yeah. and try and Cut you know pin so these guys down. Yeah, so. disobedient. It's kind of that. Um, Not that they're bad dogs. Right, just, right. It's a dog that's adapted to the bird. And it, it's very similar the way you describe it to a, a pheasant dog, right? Because yeah. the the pheasants and some of these deserts um, desert quail, their first instinct is to run rather than flush. So it's some of those pointers that relocate as the dogs move or as the birds are moving yeah and i know some yeah and some guys i mean they they, they're so hard on their dogs to to lock up and stay right that it's it's at the sacrifice of the birds themselves and and you know getting a dog to to work in tandem with you right um you know i I mean obviously that's why we do it it's it's to, to make a better experience but um definitely the those desert dogs i mean that's that's one of the things is is you don't want them locked up and stayed, and the birds are already gone. Well, and it's by what the time you get there. So it, it, you alluded to it earlier, um, the Merns quail, right? Where you don't want them pressing the the bird because they are going to hold. And for and you. that's and where, that's where and the, that's where a dog gets really strange. It's hard for them to switch gears because, mm-hmm. um, you know, in the desert it's a big open environment, and so you want kind of some big running dogs. Um, when you start getting into these canyons and, and, and hillsides and stuff, you want that dog to be a little closer worker. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and to really, I mean, if they find you're lock look, up, lock steady up, to wing and shot, is lock a better up and scenario. don't move. Yeah. It's, um, because it, it, I mean, it, it becomes the most gentlemanly affair for bird hunting there is. Mm-hmm. Cause like I said, those birds will stay there, um, almost nearly indefinitely with a dog locked up on point uh-huh. on and stuff. So, um, and that's one of the things, you know, where, where technology has helped out tremendously with the GPS units, right. you know, as soon as the dog stops for a little bit, right. You know, it starts beeping off on We're your thing. Oh, out. he's 72 yards over there. And, and you start going there cause the grass could be too high and you may not see him. You know, in the old days it was, it was the beeper collars or the sure. bells you were, you know, Oh, bell stopped, you know, <laughs> maybe he's on something or what about flushing dogs, uh, cockers and springers and labs. Do they have a role in um, the quail of Arizona, or, or is that a challenge? Um, they can. It's just about how you use them. I mean, it's. Um, I think uh, some of those flushers. Um, now, I've had <laughs> I've had some guides who have really incredible pointing dogs, um, who actually just like they want to keep like a like a, a little like wiener dog or a flusher mm-hmm. with them because notoriously it just it it's just notorious that you're in the bottom of the canyon. 
the dogs are going to immediately point a covey on the top. Mm. And you're going to get up there, and the next covey is going to be right back down at the bottom, mm. <laughs> you know? And so they almost <laughs> want to – because, you know, there's a lot – and then half the time they're on the side hill. And it's one of those situations where, you know, I love shotgun coaches to death where they're like, okay, make sure your feet are squared up and your shoulders are – it's like if you've ever hunted quail, you know that that is not an option. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you're sliding backwards, falling as the covey's going up and you're trying mm-hmm. to get a couple of rounds off. Um, but, you know, if, if the dogs could point them and then have a, a flusher to just, you know, to bring them out, you know, um, and, and cause most of the time, you know, we, we teach that honor point so much that, you know, they're going to stay there and you have to, you know, figure out a way to get up there and get in a halfway decent position because in a lot of ways, Mern's quail, it, that habitat is like rough grouse hunting. Um, you know, is what, is what everyone's told me they're like going, cause they immediately know where the tree is. They're going to swing behind it. And, you know, as we tell everyone, shoot through the tree, mm-hmm. you know, it's just, yep. it's a fact of life. You're going to have to do it. Right. Um, and, and Mern's quail, I mean, it's, it's different. The, the desert birds get stronger as the season goes, cause they've been shot out. They start becoming combat veterans, hmm. you know? And so a lot of guys will start the season with seven and a halfs and near the end, you know, midway through or whatever, we'll switch to sixes. Um, just because it's, it's getting harder and, and harder to get on these birds. <laughs> what are the feathers the get stronger? <laughs> yeah. But, but a Mern's quail, I mean, man, you can, you can shoot them with eights and nines. It's, you know, there's, they kind of, Oh man, it's it. It's over. It's a flesh wound. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm down. Give up pretty quick. Yeah. Um, and, and the big thing is, is, you know, you, you just want to trust the dog's nose, um, on those Mern's quail, because it's, if you can get one that, that's slows down close worker, just, you know, start working that environment. Okay, give you signs when they're getting birdie. Um, now, last season was very – was probably one of the most interesting seasons ever that I think a lot of folks experienced. Um, we were dry. We were so dry. We went um, uh, July through January without a drop of rain. Hmm. Um, not a single drop. And so Mern's Quail, like – I mean, and it is it – is, when I talk about dry, like, this goes above and beyond – you know, Minnesota dry. <laughs> this is like, it, it's, it's crisp. There is nothing for the dogs to pick their scent up off mm. of, um, whatsoever. And so, uh, some guys were like, man, I had a horrible Mern's quail season. And other guys I talked to, they were like, it was fantastic. And I started figuring out over the time, cause I had been out on, on a few trips with some guys and stuff. And I learned really quick that, um, with conditions, the way they were in the scenting conditions that, the dogs that pick up scent from the ground, nose to the ground dogs, mm-hmm. did well, did phenomenally well. They could actually track those birds down. Mm-hmm. But any of the dogs that used air scent, mm-hmm. you know, that kept their nose up. Kind of your English just, setters. Yeah, just couldn't find them. Hmm. They, they were like, oh, my gosh, it was miserable. And I was like, well, I got one guy here telling me this is the worst ever. And one guy saying, man, we were shooting limits. It was great. Mm. And you, you kind of weigh it out. And, and I think a lot of people didn't like when I had to tell them that, you know, your bird dog wasn't as good as you might have thought he was. Well, it just wasn't and for the right conditions. It, yeah, it just it, it, it wasn't right. But, I mean, there, and, and consequently, I mean, because of that, you know, there was a lot of carryover birds coming into this season. Mm. And which is great because our summer monsoons have been phenomenal. And, you know, so summer monsoon season, summer monsoon season, that sounds scary to me. So explain (laughs) why it was phenomenal and positive for quail. Well, so let's, let's give the big picture. Mm -hmm. So we got three different, the big three, we got three different birds um, who all have different requirements. Um, And so winter rains, 
translate directly to gamble I mean, it is the, the scientific literature is clear. So if you get rain in the winter, when's winter for you? So what we're looking at for gambles is we like rains between October and March. Okay. Um, and you will hear us say it's raining quail when it's actually raining outside. Okay. Because the, the tie, that, they are inextricably linked. More rain means more quail in Arizona yep. for gambles. It, it's, it is, a, it is, they're one and the same, you okay. know. Um, the, the ties are incredible. I mean, um, some of the early research, it was a five-year study. And, and most early game and fish studies um, for any state agency, when they're, they're three to five years, they get criticized for being a, a short-term study mm-hmm. and drawing these huge conclusions. And so um, we had uh, uh, Dave Brown and Tom Waddell and these guys, they had done these early studies and, and found that, yeah, it's winter rains, it's, it's gambles quail. And, and I'd heard a lot of the criticisms like that before. And, and so um, it was a few years ago we were hosting the, the every five-year um, uh, quail gathering, basically. It's all the researchers mm-hmm. and academics and managers and stuff. We all get together. And, and it literally was the hardest presentation I think I'd ever given. Um, and so I said, okay, um, let's throw everything we know out about gamble quail. Throw it all out. I'm going to throw your, your conclusions out. I'm going to throw that date out. And I'm going to take a 40-year segment, the most recent 40 years, which none of you guys used, would I still see the exact same things? Now, the reason why this was a very hard presentation to give was because everyone I had cited was in the room looking mm. at me. Mm. <laughs> you know, they were like, okay, you know, what, what, are you, what are you doing here, John? Like, you know, and surprisingly, it was, it was the same. I mean, literally, winter rains became far head and shoulders above. This was the number one factor for Gamble's quail production. Hmm. There was nothing else that was even in the ballpark. So when you say winter, and you, you gave a six-month window mm-hmm. of winter, October to March. Mm-hmm. That, so precipitation in any form during that six-month window, you consider winter, and that's going to lead to Gamble's quail. Yeah, and, and generally, I mean, the, the more important months tend to be November through about February. Okay. Um, now, what, what we like is, is we like slow rains. Um, you know, just, just kind of something that, that'll soak up because Arizona has the potential like in the summer Flash. for, you know, eight inches of rain in an hour. Mm. <laughs> and of course it doesn't soak into the ground. It's down to the washes and sure. out and, yep. and gone. So you, you, these, these winter rains, we like them to just be kind of slow moving, cold storms soak into the ground really. Cause, cause vitamin A production in the desert is what spurs gambles quail into breeding. Hmm. Um, and so what we're looking for is the little forbs um, that come up after so the winter it's rains. So it's a function of habitat then. So la- it is. rain or lack thereof produces, produces whether that's a nesting, nesting cover or the insects and the forbs that are coming up to mm-hmm. be able to basically make these broods. Yeah, and so, so what the, the gambles quail, what they're looking for are just the little green forbs that come up that are high in vitamin A. Hmm. Okay. Um, you know, some, some grasses and things like that have, have – different amounts of vitamin A, but vitamin A is what gets both the male and female reproductive organs into breeding condition, um, as they're getting ready because the, the peak of gambles quail hatches in May, end of May, first part of June. So back up 45 days from mm-hmm. that. And that's about, you know, and usually it's, it's April, you know, kind of in that, that early mid April timeframe is when breeding is the heaviest. And that's when we're doing our call count surveys because the males do a different call that time of year. It's, it's a cow call. It's a single note cow call. And I go out to the desert and every mile for 20 miles, I get out and listen for three minutes and, and start counting. Hmm. 
Um, and, uh, I've been running the same route for several years. And, and, and so you can tell just based on how active, how many calls you're hearing over the course of that, that trip, man, males are ready to go. Hmm. Like they just know they're trying to find a female. We got to breed and you know, everything's mm-hmm. good. So, um, but if they're, if the calls counts are down, you know, you know, it's not going to be a good production year. Hmm. So we know pretty fairly early on you know, what, what's going to happen with the, the quail through that call count survey. Cause those males are just super vocal and, and really are the, the key to, you know, um, working that. So then switching gears, um, scale quail are six weeks behind gambles quail under normal conditions. Okay. Um, and so they actually require spring rains. Okay. Now that's really strange for Arizona because really strange to get sprint rain in the spring. April, May, and June are the three driest months in Arizona. Sure. I mean, just absolutely dry, nothing out there. And so in New Mexico, where they have a different, little different uh, weather regime, mm-hmm. it's a little more conducive to scale quail. Hmm. And so for the scale quail in Arizona, if the winter rains are good, they'll go early. You know, condition habitat habitat conditions are favorable and all that stuff. They'll, they'll start breeding and nesting earlier. Um, if it's not, they'll wait to see what the summer monsoons are and may go later. Hmm. So, and then that, that brings us to Mern's quail cause Mern's quail we're looking at for the monsoon rains, summer rains. And for that, um, it's, it, it is a really kind of an interesting thing because the amount of rain we get plays heavily on gambles quail. Mern's quail have kind of a different relationship to rain. Um, it needs to come on time. Hmm. And even, even with average rainfall, we can have super production. You don't need excess rain to, to make even more birds. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it, it literally is a one-to-one ratio in, in the winter for gambles. But all we need is normal rainfall. It's got to come at the right time. Usually July 4th is kind of the start of that summer monsoon rains. You know, there's only two monsoonal areas in the, in the world India and, and the Arizona, New Mexico area where the, it's a one, and the reason why it's called a monsoon is because it's a 180 degree wind shift hmm. where generally winds into Arizona come from the West or the North, you know, Northwest, things like that. It all of a sudden reverts from a South Southeast flow. And so you've, you're gathering moisture coming up out of the Gulf of Mexico or from the Sea of Cortez um, off the West coast converging from the South in, in Arizona. And that's where, you know, and I'm, I'm sure you've, some of you guys have, have probably seen, you know, those images of the 60 foot dust wall or the 60 mile, yep. you know, dust coming wall through Phoenix or just, coming through. yeah, devouring Phoenix because all those storms build from the South and they start in Tucson and, and as they cross over Tucson, you know, the, the, all of a sudden the clouds are going higher and higher and the moisture is really gathering hopefully to just dump everywhere. Well, there's a large agricultural component between Tucson and Phoenix. Yep. And if that storm collapses, you know, if it doesn't have enough energy to generate, it collapses in these dust, you know, dusty farm fields and blows up all that dust to just devour Phoenix. Hmm. And so if it, it makes wonderful. it, it, yeah, it's, it, you know, it's, it's visibility goes down, you know, I mean, it, it looks scarier than it really is. It's it, everything gets covered. You know, you don't want to wash your car cause you know, it's just worthless during that time. <laughs> everything eats dust. And, um, but, uh, uh, yeah, so that's kind of the reason, you know, behind that, that it, for at that time of the year, just the way the pressure systems work, hmm. moisture comes from the South instead of the West and North. So, so a couple of quick biology questions about sure. these species, um, you know, with, with 
bobwhite quail, pheasants, they'll re-nest if they lose their clutch. Um, I'm assuming that's true of all these species. If, uh, um, you know, some, uh, some sort of predator takes out a nest, all of these species are going to re-nest and give it another shot, correct? Well, not necessarily. Okay. So um, this is one of the major questions I think up on bird hunters have. It's one we get all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, double clutching or, or you know, second clutches or things mm-hmm. like that. Um, so we have a check station at the Oracle Junction um, study area. That was when we first started learning about uh, Gamble's quail. Um, and it's it's operated continuously for, let's see, uh, since 1950 or 51. Um, and so our call count routes are, are the exact same. We have a check station. We have call count routes. We have, I mean, this, day, this is the most continuous quail data set, I think, in the country. And um, every year it's been run. And, and so what we've seen, should we, should we see later with, with all this data you would expect on opening day, which consequently is, is usually, um, it's actually, I think this Friday for us, I'm up in Minnesota for our opener. Um, but what you would see is three quarter grown quail, you know, and you would see a lot of them, mm-hmm. but this entire data set doesn't show a lot of that. I mean, some years we do have that. So it's, it's not that double clutching or, or laying down a second nest has an, a great impact, um, on our birds. Um, at all does it occur sure you know is it significant to the whole of the population no not really so so what um i think i hear you saying is that if if a desert quail these three species the scaled the gambles and the merns if they lose their eggs on a nest they may not re-nest um if they lose a brood they're done right yeah, yeah, more than likely. I mean, we, we have, you know, a little bit of information that, you know, three-quarter – there are some years, um, and more more when more when it's um, – the weather has been very strange, mm. um, where winter has extended into, into April or May or something. You know, you might see something where some later hatches occurred, and therefore three-quarter grown quail are right. shot on opening day. But um, there's not much of it. it not huh. not a significant enough to, to kind of go, okay, well, you know – Basically, all these lost all their nests. They restarted, and everything's okay. Right. You know, so. Huh. So it's um, you have a real small window of time where the very variables got to come together. And and that's and and yeah. And one of the things is you know, like I was telling you earlier, Arizona's never had a bad year for all three. Hmm. Um, so it's not it, it's not boom, it's not boomer bust for across the board. No, no, no. It, because of the this this variable difference you will have one species that's okay or great mm-hmm. and maybe the other two are suffering or maybe only one suffering, you know, in, in terms of their numbers and as they, they kind of, you know, fluctuate over the years. Um, but so that's ne- a, that's a great scenario <laughs> for a bird hunter. You just got to know which one to chase. Yeah. yeah. And in, and in this particular, and, and right now in this instance, you know, we're looking at Mern's quail this year. Mern's quail is likely to be probably one of the, the, the star highlights this year. Gambles have, have suffered, man. It's been super, super dry. We're, we're in a long-term extended drought, which is, has been affecting the winters. Um, and, you know, even one good winter isn't going isn't gonna to fully dig us out of the hole. I mean, mm-hmm. it's going to take hopefully. And really what we'd like is just, you know, average rainfall. Um, and, and so when you, when you talk to other states and, and you think about it in, in context, um, you know, Arizona's average rainfall is, is almost 20 inches annual mm-hmm. 
for the whole year, 20 inches, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's and, not including snow, right? <laughs> no, that's all of it. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, know. that's it's it's 20 <laughs> inches of, of, of rainfall throughout the whole year. Um, and, and so you look at a state, another quilt, like take Georgia, for instance. Mm-hmm. You know, Georgia, let's say it's 200 inches, you know, on an average year. Um, so you have to take it in that same context. Does, does an inch make a difference in Arizona? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. But I want you to think of Georgia. If let me, let me give you the, the scenario of, of weather patterns for Bob whites in Georgia. Um, your average rainfall is 200. Okay. For the next three years, I want you to only have between 80 and hundred inches. And then that fourth year, we're going to give you 500. Hmm. And then, then we're going to go back to, to our 200 and then, you know, maybe we'll do 150 and then, then we'll do 300 and then we'll do a couple years of like five or 50 inches of rain. And then, then all of a sudden we'll have two years of, of 300 inch rains again and stuff. It's in that magnitude. Mm-hmm. That's the same as, as Arizona, except it's just literally mm. single inches. Mm. You know, we could drop to 10 inches for a year. We could go 30 inches. Um, you know, one of the things, one of the things that, that Arizona built its name on and how the rest of the world found us, um, is kind of an interesting story because, um, Arizona was relatively unknown up until the late seventies. Unknown as a bird hunting, as as a quail hunting area. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, basically Bob whites by the seventies throughout much of their range had collapsed. Um, you know, I mean, they, they were in the doldrums. Um, by the time the mid seventies came around and everyone's like, Oh my gosh, you know, the, cause the sixties had come and they were phenomenal times, but Bob whites had really crashed and things were changing. Um, the first ever article that appeared in the winter issue, 1978 of field and stream, it was a, it was an article called the crown prince of quail. And a guy had, had gone out gambles quail hunting outside of a little town called Wikiup. And this was the first ever national coverage of gambles quail to the rest of the world. I mean, you know, and guys in the East are like, what, there's, there's someplace else we can shoot quail. What, mm-hmm. what are we talking about? And, and so interestingly enough, um, the winter of 78 was our first winter six inches above normal rainfall. So the early adopters came for the, the season of 79 hmm. and there were, there were gobs of Campbell's quail everywhere. I mean, it was a great year. You know, we had a, a, an above average winter. So 79 happens, guys come out, they're like, Oh, this is awesome. Well, 79 was our second year continuous straight of six inches above normal rainfall hmm. for the winter. And so they go back and tell their buddies, oh, hey, Bob, you, you got to come out with me. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, this is the greatest thing since sliced bread. Well, our population grew even more from from that first mm-hmm. year because of this, this winter rainfall. And so you start reading these accounts. Well, then, you know, a, a good number of quail hunters show up in, in the, the winter of 80 you know, for this season. And they were like, Oh my God. I mean, they were seeing super cubbies. We have gambles quail do what's in, in abundance. They do what's called super cubbying. And so you'll see cubbies of 150, 200, 300 <laughs> birds, right. In a single cubby. And dog and, want to know what to do. Uh, with that. I don't yeah. think I would know. What oh, and do. it's crazy. Well, so then, you know, the eighties happened. Well, then winter of 80 happens and it's the third consecutive year of six inches above normal rainfall. Mm. There are reports in 81 of quail hunters when you, when you read some of these stories. Um, and Phoenix was way smaller back then. You know, I mean, Phoenix, Phoenix was just like a regional airport in 1970. Mm. I mean, <laughs> it, was, it was still very small. But by 1980, there were reports when the planes were landing on the free. There were coveys on the tarmac in Phoenix. Mm. 
like literally you're getting off the plane and there are coveys of birds <laughs> on the tarmac. Like, hey, welcome you just, to Arizona, Yeah, guys. you just, you know, <laughs> there, were, there were birds everywhere. Huh. And so, the, you know, I mean, that's really what built our name huh. um, was that time frame because guys, they couldn't believe it. I mean, they were just shooting like mad and limits of 15 were coming like, you know, you were just drinking water in the morning. It was, mm. wasn't anything. And you went anywhere. Because they just covered everything, and then it, you know we kind of ebbed and flowed after. That was really, in historically, that was like our peak. You know, ever everything was just a perfect storm that came together with water and hunters, and and just really blew up. And so that's kind of what built Arizona's name um, in the '80s. And, and Mern's Quail was still relatively, you know, kind of a, an inside. You know, some guys knew about it, some didn't, and and you know, now it's it's kind of really become the trophy quail, I think, mm-hmm. of of the Americas. Um, and so guys, you know, that's like, uh, I, you know, I still got to get my Merns quail. I got to get out there. And, you know, there's such a beautiful little bird and different environment that, you know, it's great. You can, you know, yeah, you're going to work a little harder this year for gambles quail, but I can tell you right now, we've been getting slammed this year with water. So I don't know what next year looks like. Um, uh, hurricane Rosa came through Arizona uh, a few weeks ago, absolutely soaked us. Um, this last tropical storm came up out of the sea of Cortez just drowned us last weekend we were out on a flush count survey for scale quail for some habitat work we'd done and man they were just it, we were getting wet so i have really high hopes hopefully this will continue through the mm. winter and and maybe start a, a a positive direction for gambles quail again so so if they if you want to hunt merns this is a good year to head to arizona and mm-hmm. where where would somebody use as a launching point for Merns hunt? So the the heart of of Arizona's Merns quail country is Sonoida and Patagonia. Yeah. Um, those two cities are are dead square in the heart. They're at about five thousand foot elevation. They have you know dog friendly hotels. All the guides hang out. And and one of the other beauties of of Merns quail is don't get up early. Hmm. Do not wake up early. Speaking my language, brother. (laughs) Sleep in. Like, you don't even think about leaving before 8 a.m. Mostly because the Merns quail have such a light scent, you want them to lay some down for the dogs Uh and start moving around before you even get on because it just really isn't worth your time. And you are going to be hunting elevation. You're going to – that's something where you got to come to town in shape. Well, yeah, drink water. I mean, okay. you know, Hydrate. if you're in there in December and January, even as cool as it is in Arizona, and, you know, I mean, we're talking about, you know, probably warming up during the day to like 60s, 70s. Um, it, you don't realize that the, the desert is still trying to kill you. It doesn't matter where you are. Mm-hmm. Everything in the desert wants to kill you, and and particularly the environment. Now, never pay attention to a, a, an Arizonan who's been there for years because we're, we live in a permanent state of dehydration. Hmm. Our blood is like 90-weight gear oil. You know, <laughs> We'll go on like these big excursions, just one little bottle of water. But people who aren't used to it, man, just make sure you and your dog just have to stay hydrated 100%. Because okay. um, even as cool as it is, it's so dry. The environment is so dry. It's just sucking the life out of you. Do you, so. do you, rec- do you recommend a specific uh, time period throughout the season that's maybe best um, to come and visit? Come and visit? You know, one of the things that, that I really like, I mean, obviously people have this opening day effect. You know, they want to be there for the opener. The um, opener, that's the time when there's maybe the most birds. Well, the most birds, they haven't been messed with yet. Yep. You know, it's yep. it, they're a little dumber, things like that. Pretty warm. But, um, yeah, no, that's great. But, but January has been an awesome time for us. Um, because where else in the country do you want to be except Arizona in January? Yeah. You know, I, I literally... 
people, people always ask me, they're like, man, how do you do Arizona? Like, I just can't imagine that. And I said, Arizona summers are like, you know, Minnesota winters, right? If you're in Minnesota in the wintertime, you're just moving from one heated box to the next <laughs> as quickly as you can. In the desert in Arizona, I just move from one air conditioned box to the next mm-hmm. as quickly as I can. But I do have one aspect where I have the upper hand. I have the edge and I win. <laughs> I don't have to shovel sunshine. Okay. <laughs> that's what, that's my spot where I win. And so, you know, the, the winters in Arizona are just, I mean, it's phenomenal. Um, just how great temperatures are, you know, the dogs can work all, quite a mm-hmm. bit longer. Um, you know, the early season in quail, like right now, man, it's warm. You know, mm. your dog, your dog has a, has a shelf life in the morning, you know, as soon as you kind of run through, all right, you know, they're resting for the rest of the day. Cause it's, it's really hot to work. But as the season progresses, I think January is probably our most phenomenal time. Um, particularly for non-residents. Um, January is, is pretty awesome. Um, you know, if, if you want to bring your kids, if you want to expose your kids to something really cool, um, we have $5 non-resident youth hunting and fishing licenses. Mm. It's five bucks. Your kid can be hunting quail with you. They can be fishing Arizona's waters. They can, you know, anything that's going on out there. It's five bucks for kids. Um, is that what? like is that like thirty two and under, or is that like <laughs> no? It's <laughs> under <laughs> under eighteen. But um, so five dollars for five non-resident for kids. kids. What's an uh, adult non-resident? Uh, so there? so adult non-residents. What you can do is is we have the option for um, the the single day licenses, mm. um, and they're twenty dollars. Okay, so it's twenty dollars. Um, you can, uh, for the whole day now, um, and you can do that up to eight days. Hmm. If you're going to hit eight days at that point, you're at $160. That's the cost of our non-resident full year license. Gotcha. So, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to stay anywhere seven days or less, do the daily. Really? That, that's, that's really very, reasonable. Yeah. I, I was thinking the exact same thing. $20 a day to hunt quail in a beautiful new landscape that's extremely reasonable and it's a pretty pretty long season too sure one well, and and so i'll give you the reason to stay more than eight days hmm. right so so here's here's the great part about it i would suggest if you can if you can stay longer do it by the 160 dollar full license because at that same time january we have archery over-the-counter deer tags um for mule deer and coos whitetail not your normal big Easterns like you got over here, these mm-hmm. big corn fed. We got the little little midget coos whitetails, um, which is are in southern Arizona are plentiful. Mm. Um, it's it's a phenomenal time, and it's our rut. Mm. Our rut doesn't happen until much, much later compared yeah. to you guys. And so you can be out there archery deer hunting, um, uh, waterfowl. Um, remember, we're the end of the flyway. Mm-hmm. And so all these desert stock tanks, it's really strange. You'll be out in the middle of the desert, and here's this water, this 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 dirt cattle tank, you know, out on some ranch somewhere, and there'll be ducks in it. You'll see buffle heads. You'll see cinnamon teal. You'll see all <laughs> kinds of stuff. You just and don't so, even, as a duck hunter, like, I don't, I don't even, that doesn't even compute with me. <laughs> then you're, you know, a, a, buff, a buffle head in a stock tank, you know, you're just. <laughs> yeah, you uh, should see where your, your ducks hang out, you know. Really? In, in the, in, they're slumming it down in Arizona. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, Jeez. But, uh, uh, you know, and, and two of the ducks that Arizona is known for, if, you know, if they're on your list, um, you know, because it's January, full color cinnamon teals mm. and Mexican ducks. Um, those are the two that Arizona, like, guys come, okay, we need this, you know, we got, we got to go after them and stuff. So um, really a, a kind of a neat time. It's the, the kind of the, if no one's familiar with Mexican ducks, they're, they're um, uh, 
they're really like the model duck or the, mm. the black duck of the West Southwest. Um, and Arizona has a big concentration of them. So is, is there a, we'll, we'll keep on the small game, but I, real quick, is there, is there a javelina season down there in January as well? Absolutely. So, so we just, the, the, um, the application deadline for, for the spring, I didn't want to bring it up, but, but we just passed that. Um, but so yeah, javelina hunting starts in January for us as well. And so usually the first three weeks of the season or so, uh, starting January 1st is archery only then followed by uh, a youth javelina season, um, then a ham season, a handgun archery muzzleloader. You can use either, either one of the three in there. And then the general rifle season starts, and that's usually later into February. You're but but if you're into bow hunting, if you're, you know, bring your bow, bring your shotgun. Man, I mean, there's, there's usually always leftover javelina tags um, out of our draw during that time frame. So you could be down in those units and literally shoot a coos deer, javelina, and merns quail at the same in the same unit down there, you know, while you're out there. Um, That's pretty cool. You could see oddballs like Kawada Mondays. I don't know if you're familiar with those, the, the, the crazy little like half monkey, half raccoon looking things that are in Southern Arizona. We do have a season on those. There, there's one per calendar year. Um, uh, strange looking little monsters. Hmm. They, I, I always get phone calls cause they're always in the tall grass and they have almost what looks like a prehensile tail. Like it could grab something, but it's always curled over at the top. And so I'll get phone calls from people who aren't familiar with Southern Arizona. They're like, I saw this huge group of monkeys down on the border. And I'm like going, okay, hold on. Just describe exactly what you saw. I said, well, we saw these tails and they were all crawling. I'm like going, those are Quata Mondays. They're like, Quata what? And I'm like, Quata Mondays. They're just these, these cute little monsters down there. Did you say Cupacabra? El Chupacabra. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the Chupacabra. But yeah, they're, and they're crazy little monsters, boy. Um, uh, they get riled up and you'll see. So when you see the big groups of them, that generally tends to be uh, females and subadult males and, and offspring and stuff. The solo ones are the males. When you just see a solo out there, that's that's usually a big adult male. He doesn't. What like are those called again? Kawada Mondays. So it's C O C O A T I. I've never heard of them either. I've never heard of them either, but I'm sure I'm sure my dog would. Well, have so interest th- in so that. that is where I wanted to bring this back to to quail. You you drive down. And you've got your um, your bird dog that maybe isn't used to cactus and getting poked. What other things should uh, you be? I'm assuming there's rattlesnakes. Uh, what other things should we be um, conscious of hunting Arizona for the first time that will be so? Different? Yeah, um, Mern's quail in in the Mern's quail habitat. You don't have to worry about it as too much. Um, there aren't near as many cactus up in that that foothills environment. Those oak and and um, uh, oak line draws and things like that, you know, a little bit more grassy when you actually get like, there's a big area called the, the San Rafael, um, uh, Valley. Um, and it looks like you just stepped into Southern California in one of these, like, you know, just open grassland hill, rolling Hills kind of stuff. It's very beautiful. Mm. Um, but, um, yeah, things to concern yourself with, um, a lot of guys ask about boots. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, I mean, if you're chasing desert birds, your dogs, you know, from a softer environment, um, boots really do help, um, and, and get the toughest ones you can, you know, don't, don't skimp out on that. Cause it, heck you don't even skimp out on your own boots. Um, because there are thorns and barbs out there that will go through the soles of a lot of your own boots, let hmm. alone your dogs. Hmm. Um, you know, anything to, to remove, uh, cactus for dogs that aren't, you know, um, we usually, 
combs are, are one of the big things that we carry. Um, and you try and get ones if you can, um, they make, um, like stainless steel combs, um, just like old men's combs, you mm-hmm. know, you see, keep that in your bird vest. Cause, Cause a little cactus spikes you, will just get caught. Yeah. Choya balls and things will get attached to your dog. And all you need to do is just comb through their hair and pull it out. Okay. Um, those are good things. Uh, water, you know, one of the other things, um, if you're, if you know, you're going to be in a particular area, one of the things that's really nice is in advance is to call the vets. Mm-hmm. Um, in the area, find out if they have, you know, weekend and, and emergency yep. know services, where they are. know where they're at. Um, you know, I don't, in the wintertime, I don't worry too, so much about rattlesnakes. We found rattlesnakes out about every month of the year, but usually during that wintertime, it's very cold. So it's a rare occurrence mm. early season, October, even into a little bit of November, you'll, you'll, we have a higher instance of, of rattlesnake bites and things like that. But, um, and then that's also a good thing to check if you are out there early, Call in the vets, find out if they actually have the anti-venom mm-hmm. vaccines with them, you know, or, or find out, you know, it always helps to know what species of rattlesnake, because we have a lot of species of rattlesnake, don't just think it's one. Mm. Western diamondbacks are probably the most common, but Mojaves, things like that. I mean, we have a, a variety of, of rattlesnakes. So, What about for um, humans and rattlesnakes? Do you ever get bit? Um, I don't. Um, you know, most of our, our rattlesnakes... Uh, they, they tend to be pretty good. I mean, for the most part, um, I, I don't see a lot of people getting bit by them, um, mostly because the rattlesnakes are just, you know, they're, they're just as scared as right. you. And, so do, and, you, do you wear um, chaps, taller boots? Don't worry about that. No, I, I don't think, you know, one of the things that, that doing that um, now in, in, in cactus desert country, mm-hmm. um, it'll save your pants mm-hmm. for sure, wearing chaps or something like that. But, mm, it adds to your heat factor, sure. you know, and, and it's going to wear you out a lot more too. So. so that was one of the other questions I had is, um, you know, dogs wearing vests because of, does that help with the cactus and the Spanish daggers or is it just create more Not heat? really. No. And, and, and it's pretty rare. I mean, um, there's only a few areas where you'll run into the, the, the Spanish dagger, the Lechaguilla stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and Believe me, your dog will figure out that that is just gnarly bad Something stuff. Something to avoid. Yeah, you're not even going to want to step on it. I mean, it's mm-hmm. it destroys your ankles. Those barbs mm-hmm. go in, and um, but there's you know, I mean, there's the the mesquites, the cat claws, the acacias. They all have curved barbs, mm-hmm. and and it just it tears at your clothes. It tears at the dogs and stuff like that. And I, the dogs, I think, figured out quicker than we do. You know, <laughs> you know, early on, I introduced you as. Um, you know, it's all about the food in your Twitter profile, amateur, hashtag amateur chef. Um, tell us a little bit about the difference. Is there a difference when you eat a, a Merns versus a Gambles versus a Scaled? Can you taste anything different? Yeah, well, um, so Merns, like I said, they, they have a different body shape. Mm-hmm. They look like apples with little heads on them instead of the, the standard pear shape. Um, they are a much meatier bird. There is a whole lot more meat to them than a gambles quail or a scaled quail um surprisingly a lot and and um particularly when you open them up you'll find uh they're just they're just as juicy and tasty as most of the other quail i mm-hmm. mean i think all the quail are are pretty similar i think you could probably detect greater differences maybe in grouse mm-hmm. than you could in quail gotcha. um but um yeah it's i don't know necessarily that there's a there's a a, a taste difference that you can that might be measurable overall with quail. I mean, quail are just so delicious to begin right, with. It's right. hard to 
you know, they as long as as long as they're 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 cooked, you know, well, not overdone and dry. Yeah, that so I had a similar conversation with Hank Shaw. You know, asked because he's hunted and yeah. eaten all of them, and and he said the same thing. You know, from Bob Whites to Scale to Merns, they they basically taste the same. The the beauty is when you pair it with whatever's regional yeah. to that area, and you know, with in Arizona, you know, I think. Uh, you know, playing off tequila or some sort of cactus um, application would make it a wonderful way to approach and quail in Arizona. Yeah, it, so, um, and Hank has, has done, um, we had him out a few times, he's done uh, uh, his his southwestern barbecue sauce that he used prickly pear syrup mm-hmm. for. Now, prickly pear syrup is pretty electric purple, and so <laughs> putting this electric purple stuff over that beautiful white succulent meat, you're like, I don't know what I just did to this, but like, <laughs> you know, and it, and it absolutely does taste phenomenal. Um, one of the things I discovered in early season, particularly you know in this October time frame, um, I created a, a prickly pear and green chili chutney because it's also the end of our green chili season. Um, so Hatch, New Mexico, and all the Hatch green chilies are out, and and so I made this chutney between the two. So you have this really you know electric green and this electric purple in this it looks like toxic waste you know and i love just grilling quail and dipping it and eating it mm. but it's you're like going it doesn't look like it should taste good but it's got this beautiful sweet heat and, and things like so, that so i think it sounds delicious yeah, I, oh yeah yeah i we we really love i mean we're we're spoiled in that respect with with the green chilies and and everything right mm. there um we do our our prickly pears man the the season for those um the uh the tunas, which what the fruit is called. I mean, it. we have different, so many different species of, of those uh, prickly pear cactus. You can harvest um, those tunas anywhere between June and October, um, depending on which ones at mm. the time is, is turning ripe and, and coming in. So um, those are, seems like always available. Or you can stop by a store and pick up a jar of, of Sherry's uh, prickly pear uh, syrup, which is the local gal who, mm. you know, she's kind of the, the main 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 source when it comes to the syrups and things like that. That's so, awesome. Um, um, as a reminder, we're talking with uh, Jonathan O'Dell, the small game biologist for the Arizona Game Fish uh, Parks Department. No, just Game just and Fish. Game and fish. No, yeah. no parks. No parks Game yet. and Fish. Um, and you're wearing a, a Quail Forever t-shirt, so I'd be remiss if I didn't bring up <laughs> the fact that you're also a Quail Forever member and volunteer. Right. Tell us uh, a little bit about what's happening on the Quail Forever front uh, with, with chapters in Arizona. Right. Well, and this is this is no ordinary Quail Forever shirt that I'm wearing. Um, this is this is this is our this is our partnership shirt between the Arizona Game and Fish Department and the Southern Arizona Quail Forever chapter. Um, opening weekend of Mertens, um, coming up December seventh. Um, now on December eighth, that Saturday. From 1 to 4 p.m. at the Senoida Fairgrounds in the Pioneer Hall uh, is Quail Fest. Um, the Southern Chapter is, has partnered with us. Um, this is its second year. The first, we ran it first year just to kind of see what would happen. And, man, a lot of people showed up. So we said, all right, we're going to do a second year. Now, this is a dog-friendly event. You can bring your, bring your dogs in. So you can actually hunt all morning, come to the fairgrounds from 1 to 4, bring your dog inside. Um, hang out. There's there's all kinds of vendors. Both of our, our Arizona's Quail Forever chapters will have booths there. The department will have a booth there. Um, uh, Q5 Outdoor Products, who's who's really you know when it when it comes to the Western Bird Vest, mm. um, you know uh, I know so there's a lot of guys. Formerly Quillamine, right? Is that so? So 
Quillamine, so Q5 started first, and then they purchased Quillamine. Oh, okay. Um, so it's it's all under the Q label. Right. Um, and the reason why it's called Q5 is because they're made in Arizona with the five quail. Gotcha. Um, so the vests are actually made in the United States in Arizona itself. Um, Dan Priest, who who started this company and, and designed um, the Q5 vests, um, is an Arizona hunter. He's an Arizona native. We just inducted him to the Arizona Outdoor Hall of Fame a couple years ago. I can't say enough good stuff about this guy and his company. And, and these vests were built, you know, Arizona tough. I mean, mm. it's, it's heavy Codura. Um, they stand and they're, they're strap vests. They're made for carrying extra water when you need it. They're, they're meant to, you know, get, be out in the sun and not fade out, you know, get, get scratched, get barbed, get cut up and still work. And Do operate. they repel rattlesnakes too? You know, they don't. Um, <laughs> you probably I can beat, beat, beat one with it. <laughs> so, so what's beautiful about it is, is, is he has several varieties. So he has the Quillamine line mm-hmm. still same, same as it ever was just the new materials. So, um, he has what's known as the San Carlos vest and then the Upland vest, um, two really different ones, but they're nice, particularly for the grouse woods. I brought my Quillamine actually hmm. with me here to Minnesota for this. Um, and then, uh, on the Q5 side, he has the rim fire and he has the center fire. And I think he has a new hip belt. The center fire is the biggest one. And I got it right away because I was super excited about this vest. This vest can carry so much water and so much weight on your shoulders. And you never even know that it's there. Hmm. Um, once it's adjusted, it's perfect. But the back tray, I'm going to tell you what you, you know, think, think of your best pheasant hunt, right? How many birds were you carrying out of the field in your vest? Well, in Kansas, you can shoot four, four. so I'm going to go with that. So, so in Arizona, um, one of the unique species we have is called the antelope jackrabbit, and and that's a lot of Hank and I's inside joke about mm-hmm. jackalopes. Mm-hmm. But there is a species called an antelope jackrabbit. It is the largest lagomorph in southern, in in the United States. <laughs> um, on average, the rabbits weigh nine pounds. Hmm. Big ones, twelve, thirteen pound jackrabbits. Um, now. We go out on these excursions and hunt them. Hank and, Hank and I love to, to go out after these guys all the time. But you shoot three of them, you're over 30 pounds, hmm. right? 30 pounds of jackrabbit meat, and you're only a quarter mile from the truck. You've just started. And you can throw them in that vest and carry them around all day like it was like it was nothing. And so I that was my initial use for that vest. The was, next time I'm down, can we chase some leg, legomorphs <laughs> together? Because <laughs> I'd really that's that sounds pretty good. To the me. antelope jackrabbits are spectacular. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. And, and they taste phenomenal too. If we gr- if we grouse hunt uh, if we grouse hunt uh, this upcoming weekend, my dog is quite. Uh, fond of snowshoe hairs <laughs> oh nice well go. now 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 are you one of the guys who doesn't allow rabbits to be shot in front of your dog or uh because there's a lot of guys who don't like that I, don't, don't shoot i, I don't would shoot fall, a rabbit in front i of would the dog. fall into that category don't shoot any fur in front of my dog don't shoot anything on the ground in front of my dog come on versatile hunting right i'm there, not you know? you know i'm i'm I, I fall on that side but jared is more of a, a generalist and he likes to put meat in the freezer yeah I, i'm i'm uh i like to bring meat home and the kids like i shot, shot a tur- turkey last week yeah. you know and bringing it bringing it it was it's actually October October 10th is my uh, wedding anniversary and we didn't get anything for each other my wife and I this year and she goes 
you got something for me? And I go, she was still laying in bed. I go, yeah, check this out. <laughs> Pull the big turkey up right right in the bedroom. <laughs> That's the way to do and, it. And, and Jared is still happily married. Yeah. <laughs> but um, so just like I said, there will be a lot of vendors there. There's going to be uh, the Coronado National For U.S. Forest Service will be there. Um, likely maps of the whole area. I mean, you can you can ask all the questions you need to about Forest Service. Um, the so remind, the us, uh, remind us the dates again. So this is December, Saturday, December 8th. Opening day is on the 7th, but this is Saturday, December 8th, second day from 1 to 4 p.m. at the Senoida Fairgrounds Pioneer Hall in Senoida, Arizona. So I think you mentioned two Friday openers. Is that pretty n- normal in Arizona where hunting season starts on Friday? Yeah, that's it's a longstanding tradition where we, hmm. we generally – always start our seasons on Friday. Um, only ones with a fixed date, um, obviously don't open on Friday all the time. And that would be, you know, dove season, which is a traditional September 1st opener for throughout most of the country. And then our, our chucker as well as our blue grouse season, uh, are also on September 1st. So, um, but then switching gears. So we have that, um, another thing we're doing with the Valley of the sun chapter out of Phoenix, they've partnered with us in, in a really cool fashion, um, so this year we introduced our small game challenges, um, because we have such a diversity of, of small game and opportunities around the state and we have such a cool state, mm-hmm. we created four challenges, uh, for folks to go out and see if they can accomplish. Um, we have the mountain challenge, desert challenge, native quail challenge, and the ultimate upland challenge. Um, and so they can sign up for one per year. Um, you know, once they do, it's a $25 entry fee. They're going to, you know, if they complete it in that first year, that $25 it goes to a, a plaque, you'll receive your first year with space for all four. Hmm. You'll get a, 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 as you complete each one, you'll, you'll receive a, um, uh, a little, little, uh, engraved plaque with the year about which one you've completed. So, uh, the native quail challenge obviously is, is, is relevant to our audience. Right. Yeah. So there's, there's the three quail. Yeah. You just have to shoot all three quail in the same season. Okay. The three being the scale, the big three, the scale, gambles, and scale. Yep. And it's all you know it's pretty easy to register quail forever has the registration site you just end up sending in pictures with you holding the bird out in the field okay um and a date and and you know we'll verify and, and it's good from there um the desert challenge includes um all the quail except for merns so it's gamble scaled um morning dove white wing dove eurasian collar dove cottontail and I think there was something else, but you have to shoot five of the seven of those. Hmm. Um, the mountain challenge includes bandtail pigeons, Abert's tree squirrel, kaibab tree squirrel, cottontail, <laughs> uh, blue grouse. Where does the those. antelope jackrabbit fit in? So the antelope jackrabbit isn't a part of these challenges oh. at all. So we've that, that's we've, part of the Jared Wickley so, challenge. But, <laughs> yeah. So these are these are these really all occur in northern Arizona. Mm-hmm. A lot of the, the different ranges you have to visit. Um, and then there's the ultimate upland. And so the ultimate upland is probably going to be the hardest of all to complete. It requires all three species of quail, and it's going to require a blue grouse and a chucker. Hmm. Um, now, there's probably more blue grouse and chucker in the state of Arizona, except they're in limited locations. And, and because of this, you know, the Merns quail takes you from the, the, the Arizona-Mexico border to where the blue grouse are likely and the chuckers are up at the Utah Arizona mm-hmm. border. So from north to south, you're going to cover the entire state and you got to try and get all five birds, um, which is a very unique challenge in and of itself. Mm-hmm. But the partnership with Quail Forever, what it's done is is when people register and that $25 that goes into this, this fund, um, the Valley of Sun chapter is actually matching it dollar for dollar. Um, and 
both the 25 and so when, when you sign in for 25 it turns into 50 dollars, which is going directly into habitat work on the ground um out of the the, the valley of the sun chapter and a lot of their projects so Great. it's been a been a you know, super success this is the first year we've rolled it out um interestingly i've had some other states call me about it because they were like man how did you guys do this like this is pretty you know this is this is really unique and stuff that you know we we, we had a partnership with an ngo and matching it to get more habitat funds on the ground and stuff. And it was like, yeah, this was, this was a good way to challenge the people who are out there to, to, to really explore Arizona and see all the different diversity of species we have and, and encourage them to get out, but also to feed right back into the resource, you know, to, to do habitat work. So, which has been awesome. Cool. You know. So if folks want to get in touch with you and learn more about, uh, maybe they want to make a trip down to Arizona, learn about some of the different destinations, talk Absolutely. to you about hunting licenses, uh, how, how do you want people to reach out to you? Um, you know, you can try and call me at the office, but as you can see, I'm in Minnesota today. So, <laughs> um, I, I generally, it's, it's, it's hard to get a hold of me sometimes in the office because I'm, I'm out running around a lot. Um, on occasion and, and stuff. I usually do try and call everyone back that I can. But um, one of the easiest ways um, right out of the gate is to contact me by email. Um, and it's J-O-D-E-L-L at A-Z-G-F-D dot gov. And that's A-Z Game Fish Department. Okay. Um, and, and send me an email because, you know, one of the things I, I absolutely love to do is talk to quail hunters from other states who are coming out for the first time. Because one of my one of my objectives is I want you to, to be successful. I want you to have a good experience. And so, you know, answering all those questions, don't, don't consider it a, a you know, kind of, oh, you know, I don't want to be bugging them and all that stuff. Heck no, call me, whatever, and all that stuff. I can tell you, you know, and, and for your listening audience, if you're listening to this right now and you're, and you're thinking about coming out from Burns Quill, do get a hold of me. Because one of the things I'm going to ask you for is your address. And I'm going to send you Mern's Quail wings. So that that way your dog gets used to the smell of these birds before you come out. Hmm. Because I want you to, to absolutely, if it's your first time out for Mern's Quail, I'm going to send you, you know, a packet of wings in the mail just just to give you that advantage. Hmm. So, that, so your dog's get used to it. That's a deal in itself yeah. right there. You know? that's, that's awesome. Now, I'm that's not going to send them to you if you're fly tying and all that other stuff. <laughs> but <laughs> I will send you wings that you can use to help prep your dog in the weeks before coming that's out. Awesome. So You're also active on Twitter. What's your Twitter handle? Um, I haven't been on Twitter so much um, lately. I mean, I'm I'm on Facebook. I'm on you know Instagram. What's your Instagram uh, intermittently? Um, so all of my ones. If you want to find me on Twitter or Instagram, it's it's Cyrus Hunter. Okay. S C I U R U S H U N T E R, which is Squirrel Hunter. <laughs> um, um, or you can just search for me by my name, Jonathan Odell, J O H N A T H A N. O apostrophe D E L L. You know, you can find me one of those two ways. Um, <laughs> and I'm assuming if folks want to talk the, you know, the eight squirrel if, slam. If you, uh, yeah, if you want to talk about squirrels, I'm good for that. You want to talk about waterfowl, we can do that. Um, uh, I, I'm, I'm pretty much a jack of all trades when it comes to the small game world. Because like I said, it's for me, uh, you know, Arizona has a great reputation in the hunting community for its big mule deer, yeah. its big elk, those kind of things. But I think people miss out on really the true beauty of Arizona. I've often said, I said, you know, most people don't know, we, I would call us the small game state mm. um, with as much diversity as we have across the landscapes and things you can do. It, it's it's amazing. And well, plen- plenty of public land too. And, oh yeah, 60% public land. I mean, we're, you know, we're the sixth largest state with 60% public ground. Um, folks aren't used to that, you know, I mean, 
you're out Mern's quail hunting, you run into a fence, you just climb over and just keep going. There's only one fence you don't want to cross down there, um, and that'll lead you into Mexico. But um, <laughs> any other fence, you're usually good as long as it doesn't say no hunting or no trespassing. You, you know, and that scares people a lot. I mean, and they get really kind of weird about it. But I'm like going, no, it's it's public land, and if if you know if it is private and they don't want you hunting it, it'll be well posted. I'm glad you brought that up because that's something I had missed along the way here is that that public land access. It, it, do you need you know, you go to Nebraska and you get an atlas. You get a sure. plots map in North Dakota. Do you need anything like that in Arizona, or is there? Uh, I, th- I think they help people with with their nerves a little bit, mm-hmm. just because you know, coming. I mean, not coming from that environment, I know can be super stressful because um, they're just like, man, I just I can't believe you know I don't, <laughs> don't want to get shot crawling into somebody's farm or something. Right, right. Um, uh, yeah, things like, um, you know, one of the sponsors you guys have Onyx maps has been, you know, really great and working with us, you know, making sure to refine their, their system, uh, and their maps with us. Um, you know, just kind of getting used to it. It's, it really is. I mean, one of the, the most shocking things is, is, you know, when, when you're talking to someone kind of for the first time and they're doing this and you're like, okay, you see that mountain way over there to your left. All right. You see that one way over there to your right, everything in between is yours go. And they're wow. like, they're like, what, <laughs> what? <laughs> like that's, mm-hmm. it's just, it's, it's overload, you it's know, big landscape. well, yeah. Cause guys hunt these small parcels or tracks for whitetail or something. And you go, no, this huge landscape is all yours. Go. You yeah. Know, it's, I own, it's all I own public ground. 40, so. 40 acres in Northern Minnesota. Well, here, here you own, here you own about 6 million as a public <laughs> land. Well, and I was, so you, you do need a GPS though, right? Cause you leave your truck. Well, it's not you super can, easy to you can, find it. No, again, you can get it? turned around pretty quick. Um, GPS units definitely help, um, particularly you know if, if you have like those Astros and stuff from Garmin that mm-hmm. for your dogs, you know, keeping track of them. And not and I, and I don't want the I don't want folks to worry about it, but I just know I want to I want to give you some examples of where you know investing in that equipment has really really made the difference. Um, so uh, obviously Arizona, one of, one of its big things was there was a lot of mining for a long time. And, you know, this, this has been by no means an everyday occurrence or whatever, but, um, I've known a couple of guys who, who, whose dogs have fallen down mine shafts. Mm. Um, and the only way we were able to find those dogs, you know, they've invested a lot of time and money and energy. And and of course they're part of your family, um, was to go back to that GPS unit and find their last location and figure out, wow, they'd fallen into a mine shaft, Mm. you know, and there's the dog down there, you know, we, okay, we got to rope them up, figure out how to get them out of there. Cause you never know how deep they're going to be and, Holy and man. stuff, but we've saved, you know, a couple dogs that way. And, and it's been good, you know, instead of, cause I see sometimes I'll see the, you know, and there's some guys whose dogs just run off for no reason. And, you know, two, three days later they show up and, you know, you got to put signs out and, you know, call and, and Facebook community is really good about, you know, if they find somebody's dog to, to post it out there. But in this case, it was just one of those like, you know, man, what would have happened? You know, if we didn't mm. have the GPS, I mean, dog would have died down there would have never made it out and you know so and and you you always hate to think about those things but i mean there's a real real benefit to you know a lot of folks moving to this gps system so you know with all these things you know whether it be mine shafts snakes uh, just getting wings i mean it just seems uh, absolutely imperative to give you a shout yeah, and I, try to get a little bit of guidance. Yeah, and it, and and uh, I mean certainly, you know, we we all love to share information. Um, so uh, some of the other ways, you know, uh, that are good is is um, you know always checking the the if you're heading to Mernsquale Country, the Southern Arizona chapter has got a great website, chock full of information. Um, uh, Dan Priest, who we talked about earlier with mm-hmm. Q5, um, and I can't say enough good things about this guy. Um, 
he has a, a site called uh, AZ Quail Today. Um, and and uh, full disclosure, he publishes pretty much nearly anything I write about quail. So you're gonna, <laughs> if you can't find my stuff, it's out there it's on his yeah. website as well. Um, but uh, they post that stuff up. They're, they're really current and up-to-date huh. um, with a lot of information, um, you know, great contacts, things like that. Um, and part of it is just, you know, come down and, and, and experience it, you know, talk to people who've been there. I mean, that's one of the things about Arizona that I found, you know, we've done some, some human dimension surveys to figure out, you know, what drives people to come to Arizona, like what, what's out there. And, and for the most part, it seems like, you know, people who come to Arizona, it's because of word of mouth. It's because of a friend. I had a friend who hunted here. Mm-hmm. And so for me, it's been, all right, let's cast that net far and wide. Like I want everyone to come to Arizona to tell all their friends and grow this even bigger, you know, um, cause we do have great opportunity to, to come down and, um, you know, particularly for non-residents, like I said, you know, the, the January timeframe, man, everything's open, you know, um, come down, have a good time, you know, experience some of this stuff. Um, and, and just, just really come and, and, you know, don't be afraid to ask the questions. Uh, anything and anyone's a resource. Um, uh, Webb Parsons book, um, wing shooters guide to Arizona. Um, is a, it's, it's a little dated now because of, of changes with hotels and things like that, but still a great resource. Um, uh, our department sells the, uh, um, hunting small game in Arizona. It's a little bit more begin on the beginner side, but really is a great primer, hmm. um, uh, to help folks out. Um, written by Randall Babb. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot, actually a lot out there surprisingly, um, to, to encourage and help folks, you know, come out. But I, I, like I said, if you're coming, I want you to be successful because I want you to tell all your friends how much of a great time you had. So they're coming next year. So, well, I think you've convinced two of us. <laughs> yeah. Jared, and oh, I, yeah. Jared and I are definitely yep. putting Arizona on the list. Yeah. It's, and it's, Mearns is right at the top. I mean, it is a dream. You, you, you know, we've all seen those photos of Patagonia, right? Chasing Mearns quail and those, um, God, that, that utopic sort of southwestern scene that we all dream of being at in February when it's, <laughs> when it's blizzarding out mm. of here. So, yeah. And it's, it's a, it's a beautiful time to be there. Um, you know, one of the things we, we didn't get a chance to talk about was dogs. Yeah. Um, and, and so as I've, I've been thinking about it, as we've been kind of going along talking, yeah. I would say probably, um, you know, you can find nearly any dog out in the woods mm-hmm. in Arizona. Um, all of them. I mean, I've seen guys running, you know, Labradors and things like that as well. You know, I, I saw Chessie once, um, <laughs> but uh, I think GSPs are probably what I see most often. You mm-hmm. know, some guys run the Setters, um, um, Britneys, Britneys. Um, so Britneys are are an interesting one because they're more the Mern's dog. Okay. Um, and there's there's a neat story because you know like who knows how we learned how to how to hunt grouse or or bobwhites or whatever. Um, Mern's quail, we actually do know who and how, how they taught us how to hunt Mern's quail, hmm. um, because the season didn't start until 60. Um, and most people didn't understand this bird at all. And for 1960 in Arizona, Britneys were a weird breed to be in Arizona. Um, you know, they'd started gaining some favor in the Southeast, but to be in Arizona, it was really, really odd. And there's a couple guys named the Levy brothers, um, who brought each of them, Seymour and, and Jim, uh, each had these, these French Britneys they'd brought over, um, with a menagerie of dogs they had. I mean, they had GSPs and, and setters and, and you name it. Um, but it was really the Brittany who, who is a close working, mm. 
lower to the ground, you know, kind of dog. I think that, that over the time, you know, that's developed, um, really taught us how to hunt it. And so even to this day, you still see a lot of Britneys in the Merns, you mm. know, the, the, the guides trucks, they always, you know, have, have one or two as, as kind of the backups. They'll run GSPs and, you know, find that good pairing. And, and I'm assuming the GSP because of the heat and the, you wanting to have just a dog that doesn't, um, absorb that it doesn't have yeah. a stick of the coat right so i'd assume vishlas are relatively popular vishlas are common yeah you see vishlas quite a bit um english pointers english yeah um uh tricolor llewellyns um you know i mean what about uh, wire hairs wire hairs yeah a yeah. lot of wire hairs um uh, dr- drotters yep um uh griffons i mean you 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 just it i'm telling you what if you can show up at quail fest you're going to see one menagerie of dogs, you know, <laughs> that's just, and it's, and it's all your personal favorite, what you like working with. Um, my boss is kind of one of the early adopters, I think for, for poodle pointers in Arizona mm-hmm. and he's been running his and slick coat Shiloh and she's amazing. Hmm. She's amazing out there. So it's, uh, you know, I, I, I often wonder why people always ask that question. Like, you know, they're as if there's like a, a particular breed that, that you know is the best or right, whatever right. To, to own that but i you know i think it's all your personal preference and what you kind of get used to i mean i think if heck i don't know i bet you if a you know if a chihuahua was the best one and i told you that i'm like mm, i'm wondering how you, many people would actually buy do that, you have a dog at home john i don't we're actually in the process right now um it's been the the negotiation with the wife i've i've been so busy this gotta year negotiate with, well it, yeah i was really busy with the pacific flyway this year and a lot of travel and and couldn't be home and and everything and and so it was it's it's time that you know the puppies discussion are going on and and i'm like going well i'm gonna be home more i'm gonna you know have time for the dog and do some training so yeah it's it, the negotiation is on with the wife right now we'll we'll see how far <laughs> far i get with it but uh um and and yeah that's i a lot of friends have been trying to talk to me into just nearly everything they're like oh this breeder's got this many puppies and this that and the other thing <laughs> and uh you know I, I one of the logical arguments they've made to me just because I am such a, a, a diverse hunter is, is getting a versatile dog, mm-hmm. you know, something that, you know, work them through the NAVDA system, um, you know, get something that can retrieve ducks at the same time, point birds and, and kind of do that. So, um, I, there's definitely some options out there. I mean, I, I, I'm a lab guy at heart just cause that's what I grew up with with my dad and waterfowl hunting and all yeah. that stuff. But we'll, we'll see how it rolls out, you know, in, in the negotiation. Cause I think honestly, at this point, if I got a lab, I really, really want one of the giant American blockheads, you know, big, big <laughs> yellow monster. Because um, uh, by no means am I a small guy, you know. I, I, I need some dog that I can, I might be able to use as a, a crutch to help get up off the ground, or if I'm stuck out in the mud or something, maybe they can drag me back to the truck or something. So, well, we we can't thank you enough for swinging through the office on your on oh, your visit to Minnesota, and you know, and also, you know, we we called this out being a volunteer at Quail Forever and a member. You know, I've seen you at Pheasant Fest and Quail Classic over the years. Um, I see you interact online with our with our organization and our members, and I know you're volunteering your time. So. Um, that makes a big difference. Thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me on. I, I, I really appreciate it. I'm always, you know, um, some of the guys have, have said that maybe I need to get, you know, professional podcast guests on my business cards because <laughs> they seem to be on these podcasts, but it's kind of the new wave of, of outdoor media yeah. that I see coming on and, and really getting the message out. And, and, and so I think it's, it's positive. Um, you know, I was, I was there 
I, I kind of have a personal investment in the Arizona chapters of Quail Forever because I was there at the beginning. Um, you know, I helped form them and stuff. And, and, and so I, I, I really want to see them grow and be successful. And, um, you know, it's it, it, not only just, you know, as my job, but, you know, personally, it's, I've a vested interest. I, you know, I, it's a passion. Yeah. I, I, I love to get out there sleeve. and, and yeah, I, I, you know, love these crazy little birds. They're, they're fantastic to eat. And, and, and I get a boast that, you know, I, I get to manage these, these cool birds, yeah. you know, and, and have great partners that, you know, are willing to, to, to put in the time, energy and, and, and effort and sacrifice to, you know, to, to help continue that for the future. So, um, you know, just, just really positive stuff. And, and, you know, this organization, Quill Forever, Pheasants Forever has just been from the very beginning. I mean, I think, you know, just really, you know, super supportive of stuff. Um, even though I know sometimes we've been a, a pain in the rear cause the, the model hasn't exactly fit the, the Western, Western U S quite a bit. Um, yeah. And what you're referring to is just that, you know, we're the habitat organization in, in navigating the desert Southwest where moisture leads to habitat has been a little bit of a different equation for what you we're used to. And, you know, the, the majority of the rest of the country, Bob White Range, the Pheasant Range, it's all about getting grass on the ground. And weather is kind of, eh, it's out of our hands. And not that we have any control of the weather in Arizona, uh, but it's a little bit different equation than we're used to. Yeah, well, and, and you know, of course, it's we're, we're a different state than most. I mean, I, you know, we've got, we've got a county that's, as, that's bigger than two states um, on the eastern <laughs> seaboard. And so when you talk about a chapter per county, I know that, you know, um, logistically, it's hard to kind of wrap mm-hmm. your mind around giant counties, mm-hmm. you know, that, that are, that are very spacious and, and things like that. And, and, you know, of course, you know, we've struggled with it in the state, just, you know, how, how do you get, where do you hold a meeting mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> with a city that's 85 miles across? I mean, I know, know you, do you put it on one side or the other or in the middle or locally, you guys have done a really good job. And I know, um, I know some volunteers that moved down there. I think, you know, chip, chip Whitrock yep. and, uh, just some phenomenal people down there. And, you know, whether it's the, the habitat side of it and you've got chapters working on, on, on guzzlers out in the desert and other things like that too. Uh, I know, uh, Valley of Sun chapter, you guys have a really really large focus uh, on the youth side of it and doing a lot of cool things there, getting people involved, taking that first step so they can get out uh, and, and do the upland hunting and and get immersed in it. And whether that's through mentor hunts or just bringing kids out for outdoor days, you guys are doing some fantastic things down there. So I would, I would just encourage you guys to stick with it and, and uh, quail forever is always going to be there to help. Yeah, for sure. And, and like I said, I mean, uh, the, the Arizona chapters, you know, interestingly is, is a, point of history i mean we we were the ones we were the reason you guys changed the logo yeah uh, <laughs> when it started because we said i don't know how this is going to work with just bob whites on on the logo because it doesn't yep. represent a lot of the western stuff and and you guys were gracious enough to, to change it now like i said i i really wasn't consulted on which bird it should have been but, <laughs> <laughs> but but uh you know having a top knot on there is 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 really important to us and and yeah. you know representing those western species so um you know we we're really appreciative of that we've been picking up more chapters since that time i think and uh we've also got some private lands some farm bill biologist staff now uh down in arizona helping out and and working on uh you know conservation plans with private ranchers and also on public lands so 
um, there's a lot of good things happening down there. And if we can get more, more people down there through this podcast and buying licenses and, and help, help the whole conservation movement, I think, uh, you're going to see, continue to see great things in the future, uh, for quail hunters and, and quail for other yeah. members down that way. Well, and, and for sure. I mean, I, I, I know that, you know, it's been a, it's been a long-term, uh, long time coming with us and, and, and really the partnership between QFPF and, and Arizona, you know, I mean, I think that, you know, it's, it's even my encouragement to, to stop by the headquarters today and take a look and, and be on the podcast. Cause you know, we, we recognize the importance of you guys and, and want to just, you know, keep that, keep that going and growing. So, um, you know, we, we've, we've had Howard down on, on quail hunts and stuff like that and, and beat him up pretty bad <laughs> on the desert. <laughs> oh, so. but he, uh, so I know how, he had a good time. Yeah. So. Howard, Howard Vincent, the president and CEO of pheasants forever and quail forever hunted, uh, I think with you two years ago, maybe three years ago, and Dave Nomson, our VP of Government Affairs, and they both just rave about how much they enjoyed that hunt. It it, it was, it, it, you know, you you're right. It beat them up a little bit. It was it was a little bit more intense than they anticipated. But they talk about it as one of the most epic adventures of their life. So yeah, and that's that's what we try and always encourage, just to to spread that word that you know Arizona it's a bucket list item and, yeah. and don't wait, you know, come, come while you're, don't wait you're, till you're, you're retired, young. right? <laughs> right. <laughs> if, you know, we have a lot of retired guys who end up down there. It's, it's surprising. They'll spend the whole winter in Arizona now. Um, so that's an option for you retirees guys. If you're, if you're thinking about your long-term plan for retirement, you know, we, we have a lot of RV parks and stuff. We can, you know, dog friendly. You it, can... It's in my 30 year plan. <laughs> well, you, you <laughs> so you mentioned guys uh, a few times. What about, um, you know, the embrace of women um, taking up quail hunting? Are you seeing that happen in Arizona in big numbers? To, to a little extent, um, uh, we are seeing more. Um, you know, particularly, I, I think one of the, the big concerns, um, Arizona, the Game and Fish Department has also been a... a a member of the the agency industry summit at at the national level, um, you know our partnership with with folks like you know Vista Outdoors mm. and, and Federal Ammunition, and to to understand that that what we do, you know, on the industry side, where where you know they're making you know products and stuff for hunting, and our regulations, the impact that those have right. on each other, um, and then as well as the the third leg here, the conservation groups, it's you know, to, to, to really maneuver and navigate to make sure, you know, these are upcoming issues and things that are going on. Um, you know, one of the things early on we saw was, was, you know, uh, in, in talking to, to women, they wanted, um, apparel that fit them, mm -hmm. you know, cause guys clothes are just big and baggy and don't, you know, right. you're, you're usually wearing, you know, some, some guys clothes, not, not, you know, a little more form fitting for women and how they move and, and are shaped and stuff. And, and so thankfully, I mean, we've seen a, a much bigger increase in that lately. Um, you know, where, where there are products available, you know, um, I hadn't seen, um, a lot necessarily initially it was, I think more on the big game side where mm -hmm. it was more camo clothing and stuff, but I am starting to see a little bit more of the upland, um, clothing and definitely you guys have in your magazine, right, you know, the, right. the store now. And I think those are all positive steps to, to encourage, um, you know, folks getting out there and, and, you know, it's, it is one of the strange things to, to run into a couple of women uh, on their own, you know, out in the field and stuff. Um, and, and I'm always surprised whenever that happens, but at the same time, it, it makes me happy, yeah. you know, to see it. Cause I'm like, man, yeah, this is, you know, absolutely good. You know, you guys are out with your dogs and, and have a good time. So, um, you know, we're not seeing it 
increase as, as dramatically as I, I, I think we'd hope, but um, I think it's just definitely steps in the right direction. So Good. Well, um, I know it's on my list, so I, it'll be on uh – on Meredith's list as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, seeing how, seeing how, you know, uh, women generally make, you know, most of the household purchases. Yes. Um, those are kind of the, the things to get on the radar. Hey, honey. It's always know. helpful when both parties, it hits the list. Yeah. So. yeah make sure it's a, a to-do list on the fridge. You know, it's somewhere down the list. And well, you know, we, we want to do this one day. So, um, like I said, it was just happenstance. I was up here for another meeting and I'm like, you know, generally, you know, as, as, most of my supervisors know, like, I'm going to tack on a few days for myself if you're going to send me somewhere cool mm-hmm. um, just to, to explore or see or, or hunt for the most part. And so I'm coming to Minnesota. I'm like going, oh, yeah, no, I, I'm here in the fall for the first time. Like, I need to see the grouse woods and the woodcock and, and see what's going on, you know, even though I'm missing my, my quail opener at home. But, um, you know, those folks, I, I left it in really good hands. Our, our staff is is phenomenal down there. So. Um, I'll be interested to hear how it went and, and, uh, get out again myself probably here in another week. So, well, we're thrilled to have you swing through. We know you have a, a tour with our friends at federal premium ammunition, uh, just up the road from us coming up next. And then that's followed by your first rough grouse in, in timber doodle hunt. So we will, uh, circle a few spots on the map, <laughs> send you north be appreciated. and, uh, uh, wish you the best of luck, but thank you so much for stopping in. And, and most importantly, thanks for, uh, additionally volunteering your time outside of your day job uh, on behalf of quail forever well and 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 i appreciate that it's it's a worthwhile worthwhile endeavor for sure so so i am a bob st pierre on behalf of uh my co-host jared wickland uh thanks for listening to this quail forever focused episode of on the wing podcast it has been a privilege to talk with jonathan odell the small game biologist for the arizona game and fish department uh, plan your very own epic adventure to arizona this winter because i know i am and i know jared is thanks for listening on the wing podcast with pheasants forever and quail forever we will see you down the road for another story thank you